We're rolling. We are rolling. Podcast number one. Uh, this is pretty exciting. I'm here with Jim Witter. Uh, this is the first pa- podcast for Darren Walters in session. And he decided to have one of my best buddies uh, to come join me. And uh, of course, I think everyone would know Jim Witter. Um, Jim just finished a show in my theater, uh, The Piano Man, like an hour ago. Not even that. Nope. And that's why my voice is a little scratchy, because I sang pretty hard today. Yeah, me too. I had a fun time. <laughs> I was singing off to the side. Were you? No, it was great. It was, it's funny hearing the show, because uh, for those listening don't know, I used to, I started. You were my, well, let's say where you really did start. You started playing in my band in the 90s. Yeah. And then when I started doing these uh, Billy Joel, Elton John tribute type shows, you became my front of house guy, my road manager, and you traveled with me for years. Yeah, it was a long time. Yeah. Like, so right. Were, what was the first show? Do you remember what the first show was? I do remember where the first show was. Was it, it was from, the Oakville, Oakville yeah. uh, uh, Performing Arts Center. Yeah. And I, I remember that very clearly because um, this idea for this show, this was kind of after my solo career not had you know stopped but i was held up with curb records for years and you know they didn't put product out on me and then it just i kind of lost the momentum and i really i was in the middle of, i couldn't get out of my deal with curb and i couldn't go with another record company i couldn't release anything independently and it was it was, you know, I was just kind of in limbo and I thought, oh, I still want to perform. I want to do, so I came up with the idea to do these Billy Joel, Elton John throwback to the 70s, more of a multimedia trip back to the 70s with their music as the soundtrack. And I literally thought if I can get a handful of these around the area, that'd just be something fun to do and maybe do it a few times a year, um, never even once dreamed that here we would be 18 years later and we're still doing you know 80 to 100 shows a year of this it's cool you know watching it today and thinking about when we started with the shows i remember going out i mean it's better than it's ever been (laughs) but yet it's still doesn't seem like you've done it like thousands of times and you have done it thousands of times it just felt like it doesn't, you know, you, I've seen so many acts come in and it's just, you can tell they've done, oh, I've done this show like so many times yeah. and, and yeah. it feels like they're forcing the smile and, and, uh, you know, there's some stick stuff in the show that's been there pretty well from day one Yeah, and it's as fresh as it's ever been, which is really cool. I think that's my acting skills. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm no, but yeah. what, it, what I really think it is about is the fact that this is the music that I grew up listening to. This is the, I love this music. Um, as a songwriter, I'm always just in awe uh, of the music uh, of guys like Billy Joel, Elton John, who can just craft an absolutely perfect pop song that has all the elements that you want in a song, but also remains very sincere. You know, there's yeah. something very sincere about this music. And so when I go out and sing it night after night, uh, I just feel really privileged to be able to do that, but at the same time, I'm I'm in awe every show at these songs. I just I get lost in the songs, and the incredible craftsmanship that it took to to make these. Yeah, they uh, it, you sing the 
crap out of them. Yeah. That's really good. Thanks. Like to, today, you're just like, like you just you don't hold back at all. No, the, I didn't especially feel the like... Manilow stuff. It's just like it's good. And the Manilow stuff is really really fun to yeah. sing because for a singer, it's extremely dynamic. You you really explore your entire range. I mean, you're down low and you're up right in the stratosphere. Yeah. Um, I never really knew that those songs would be like that as a listener. It wasn't until I started learning the songs and dissecting them. And so as a singer, they're really, really fun to sing. And I, I do, I give it. And that's, again, why my voice is hacked right now. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a lot to put out. It is. Yeah. It's a lot of singing. Well, let's go back. Um, I, don't, I don't even think I know most of your, you know, I've known you for 25 years, maybe yeah. more. Yeah. Um, so you live in Hamilton, but did you grow up in Hamilton? Yeah. I mean, I live in the house that I was born and raised in. Wow. Which is a cool... Me too. Yeah. Well, no, you know, but that's a... I mean, for me, that's a really cool thing. And it's a cool story on my end in that um, I was very fortunate to grow up in this beautiful uh, old house. And um, when Rebecca and I got married, we lived in an apartment um, just a few kilometers away from the house. And I remember distinctly my folks at the time had that house and they had the property up. They had a property in Collingwood in the mountains and my dad had built, designed and built this house. My brothers and I built this house in Collingwood. And at first it was just sort of one of these casual things where they would go up for the weekend or go up for a week. But we all knew uh, they're going to probably retire up there and move up there. And it was right around the time that we were in this apartment, Rebecca and I, and we were just had our first uh, child, James. Yeah. He was a baby. And they said, um, are you guys interested in the house because we would love, we don't want to sell it just to anybody. We'd love to keep it in the family. Um, my mom was loved that house. And so for us, that was a dream come true. So I, I remember re- approaching Rebecca, though, about it and going, what do you think? Because I thought maybe she might think it was weird. Yeah. But she loved that. She loves the house, and, and we've, we've been there ever since. We haven't moved. So I've been in the same house uh, albeit for maybe a year and a half. Yeah. When we got married, we were in that apartment. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a beautiful house. It's a beautiful spot of town. It is. It's. I mean, Hamilton used to get a really... I think Hamilton's getting a bit more of a... Um, it's becoming a bit more of an arts-driven kind of town. Um, but once upon a time, Hamilton had... You know, it was Steel City and Blue Collar and... You know, when you would say you were from Hamilton, people would kind of almost kind of go, ooh, too bad. I'm real sorry for you. Not quite as bad as saying you're from Brantford. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I was born. Or, Thank you. Or Sarnia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Actually, I'm it's kidding. way better there, too. I'm I drove kidding. past there the other day and yeah. I went across the state. It's like, wow, this place is like boomed. It's yeah, crazy. It's, it's crazy. Really yeah. So these towns like Hamilton and Sarnia and even Brantford have changed a lot. And it's nice because, it, I mean, I think um, the neighborhood that we're in, in Hamilton, was definitely one of those sort of hidden gems. Like, you you drive down that street, the trees are 100 years old, and you just kind of go, whoa. Like, it's it's like stepping into uh, another another 
gosh, another city, another province almost. So was was the piano the first thing you did? No, uh, yeah. the first thing I did was guitar. Yeah. And um, my uh, folks bought me a used um, electric Ibanez oh, yeah. Strat copy. And my dad made me an amplifier. Wow. He got an old stereo amplifier that my brother Charlie was um, throwing out and an old speaker. And he rigged it all up with a little input jack. And so all I had was volume. That was it. But I plugged that guitar in there, and I, I, my brother Rob taught me how to play. And um, that, was my, that was my first instrument. And that was, I was in my first band when I was, I think, 11, probably 12 years. 11, probably 11 years old. So when, what age did you actually start playing? I, like literally, like, just like 11. Like, yeah. I started playing guitar, and two months later, started a band. And it was called Magic Carpet. Wow. And it was myself on guitar and vocals. And a friend of the family, he had a snare drum. He had a a snare drum and a cymbal. That's it. One one step away from a banjo. But but just wait. It gets better. We, We had two, not one, but two tambourine girls. Wow. They wore matching outfits. Sherry and Rhonda. And they played tambourine. And we we played gigs, we we actually played gigs. It was so much fun. You know, I was thinking the other day. I don't think there's the opportunity for younger kids to put bands together anymore. It's you know you uh, growing up, you know you you heard it all the time. Your friends were in in bands. They put bands together, and I know it for my nephew now, Skyler. You know we love to throw him in a band with kids his age but there's nobody there's nobody out there doing it and it's a lost art and it makes me very sad a few years ago my youngest luke who's now 13 started playing the drums exact same thing i thought oh this is great he'll he's he's gotten to a point now where he should join a band get some of his friends together that play instruments and so i thought this is going to be a perfect opportunity to use social media to find other kids that are out there and i've got like i don't know thousands of friends on facebook like four or five thousand friends so i thought i'm gonna just put it out there and i'll just have to weed through all the responses i get yeah so i put it out there third uh 11 year old looking for um kids around his age to get together and jam looking for guitar player bass player maybe keyboard player maybe a singer I got two responses. Wow. And one was, my kid can kind of play, but can't really play a song. And then the other one was, uh, my kid likes to sing, but... And I was absolutely flabbergasted. If I put out a post about what I ate for lunch, I'd get, you know, 400 responses. This looks delicious. Yeah. Give me the recipe, blah, blah, blah. I got two responses. It's weird, I think... Part of it is, obviously, when we grew up, there was nothing else to do. No, I mean, there, there was no internet, there was no cell phones, there was no nope. you. I remember just my youth in front of a record player. Yep, you know, back when I just the biggest thing is I remember trying to learn how to play the saxophone after I learned the violin. I think one of the next things I played was the sax, and I sat down with a Boots Randolph record and 
put the needle down and try to learn the yakety sax, which right. is the hardest thing in the world. But you, you know, there's no rewinding, slowing things down. You just try to put the needle down, listen to the first two bars, and lift it up again. And that's and, the thing, right? I mean, it was so much harder to learn back then too, and you didn't yeah. have YouTube videos to learn. Gee, what is that chord there? You had to just either figure it out for yourself, or find the sheet music, which was often wrong. Or find a friend or somebody who, who knew. I, I love the story of McCartney saying when him and, Her- and George Harrison, when they were just really young and learning their instruments, they heard of a guy <laughs> in town that knew a B7 chord. And they, they got their instruments, they got their guitars, and they got on the bus and they went across town and they went to this guy's house and he taught them a B7 chord. Now, nowadays... I don't think kids would, I mean, I don't even think a lot of kids would even bother searching that on YouTube or on any platform. It's, it's, it's definitely social media and, and all the electronics and devices have definitely taken over. And it, and it kind of scares me because it makes me think that the, the art of playing and learning an instrument is it's going to be gone eventually yeah i think you know the ones who are really good are the ones who are you know that pop through the you know you see on youtube you'll you'll see a young kid that you know blows your mind yeah they're six or seven yeah and those are the ones but you don't see the ones that are in between no and you know eventually those are all the you know the b and c player guys who's going to play in the local bar band or country band or whatever there is exactly and um you know, we need to fill from A to, you know, C or D, but I don't think it's going to be there. I remember in high school, like always being in a band. Now the players weren't always great, but we worked really hard at it. And you, and you would, you would work for like weeks, just getting up like two or three songs that you could play at the talent show. Yeah. Um, And most of the guys that I played with, they didn't go on to do it as a career and that's okay i mean that's that's fine not everybody decides that that's what they want to do but but there were so many i mean like i think in high school i I knew half a dozen guys that played guitar pretty well like they were pretty good i think that's going to disappear sadly yeah i i I just don't know where that's going to go i mean it's it it is like you said it's really sad and um I think back at, you know, both of us in our youth, that's, that's, you ate and thought about that just like constantly. It was on your mind and you just kept on thinking about, you know, the next song. And, and, and part of it is, it's like, is it the music now? Is it, you know, can you Maybe. half, you know, half the songs on the radio or whatever you're listening to nowadays, you can't even reproduce. I think it's the instant, I think more importantly, it's the instant gratification that this, generation is all about right mm-hmm. when they want to know something they can find the information instantly yeah when they want to see a movie they can go online and get it instantly when they want to hear a song uh, any song they can you remember how i mean it was like when you wanted to hear your favorite song you had to either wait for it to come on the radio or you had to go to the record store and buy the single or the album and listen to it so everything is instantly there and i think that transposes over into learning an instrument. If it's not really easy to do, if I can't instantly sit down and play this song, I'm not going to do it. 
Yeah, and a part of it is I don't think the youth nowadays, they don't want to work at anything. No, they don't. So when you've got something to really have to learn, and it takes a lot of work, and it does, uh, they like you said, well, let's go play a game or let's go online and let's, you know. Now, here's, here's an example of where, though, I, positively I've seen it happen in, in my family. So last weekend we were at the cottage, and my youngest, uh, Luke, who was 13, was playing with his cousin. They were playing Fortnite. Yeah, and the adults were just getting tired of them being on, on the on their devices, and so it was just basically okay. We're shutting down media, and the kids freaked out at first. They didn't like the idea of it, but then about a couple hours later, Luke came to me with this little gitalele, one of those little I, that I just bought, mm-hmm. little small scale guitar, but it's a six string guitar. It's a nice sounding little guitar. And he said, "Hey, can you show me a couple of? Can you show me some chords?" He love loves this artist Scott Hellman. He mm-hmm. said, "Can you show me the chords to one of Scott Hellman's songs?" So I sat down. And I picked an easy one, and it was like a G and a C and a D and maybe an A minor. That was, you know, and I kind of said, you know, now don't expect this to be something that you're going to be able to do right away. Like just. You gotta, you're going to have to work at this. Changing chords. When you first learn to play the guitar, changing chords takes a long time. Like, you know, it's, you're going to be slow moving. Yeah. And I saw a little frustration for about half an hour, but he stayed at it. And we literally went away. And three hours later, we come back. He's still at it. And now he's changing chords really fast. And he's playing this song, and it sounds decent. So now he wants to learn another song. And he, it was almost like, as soon as I took that media away from him, and he, and it wasn't an option anymore. It wasn't even one of those things where you can play that for an hour and then I want you to do something else. It was just gone. His brain just kicked into another gear, and he picked up this guitar. And within, and now, he gets up in the morning. He runs downstairs. He grabs that guitar and he starts playing right away. So it's really encouraging for me to see that happening. The other side of that coin is I also see my kids in the car. And my 18-year-old, Ryan, he actually plays guitar really well, but their attention span for music is it's, it's crazy. I, yeah. I watch him listen to the radio. He'll put a song on. He's like, oh, I love this song. Or even a CD. Or, or on his phone. He'll, he'll Bluetooth through and listen to a song. He won't listen to the whole thing, though. He'll listen to... Verse, chorus, verse. Oh, next song. Click. The attention span is going, and it's that's an, another thing that I think is really affecting why kids are playing music and why they're not playing music. I think the cell phone, having your iPhone, is such a crutch. And yes. I, I count myself on this all the time. Yeah. It's like as soon as you have like a minute or 10 seconds that you get bored, like, or there's nothing, not, there's nothing happening. Yeah. You grab your phone. Yeah. You're sitting there. Oh. Look at my phone. You know, oh, look at my phone. glued to it. I mean, our phones, you and I, our phones are sitting here just waiting for us, right? And we didn't have that when we were kids. And that's why music was, for me anyways, and maybe for some kids it was sports. Um, For others, it was uh, academics. Maybe it was reading or writing or art. But but for me, it was music. It was just like, and, and people say, when did you learn to play the piano? I said, oh, I was probably like 13 or 14 when I started playing. You didn't start playing the piano until you were 14? I go, yeah. 
But I remember distinctly just, I, I remember sitting at that piano, and like you're saying, dropping a needle onto a record and listening to a little bit and then going, okay, lifting it up and then sitting there and trying to figure out what was just, what did I just hear and trying to figure it out and spending literally hours a day. Like that was, that was my, that was my Nintendo. That was my Xbox, that, that piano. And it made, not only were you learning the instrument, you were ear training like crazy. Like crazy. Yeah. Like you could just put something down. You had to listen so close to know, figure out what those notes were and you didn't know what they were. And now, I mean, that's a valuable thing to have. And in your arsenal. It, it's certainly playing by ear. I mean, one thing I wish, I wish, I remember when my mom said to me, do you want to take piano lessons? And I, I remember seeing my brothers take piano lessons and see, hearing them play scales and all that and just going, ooh, piano, gross. And didn't want anything to do with it. I wish now that I, of course, years later, had taken piano lessons and learned how to read as well as learned how to play by ear. But if I had to choose which one of those that I could be proficient at, definitely the ear thing. Yeah, trumps. Especially, I mean, I guess it depends what you're doing, but um, if you have to sit in with charts that are written, then yeah, but... Forget it. Yeah. I mean, I'm this... I learned notes when I was young, and man, you put them in front of me now. It's just like, what? Ah, no, you can read. It would take some time. I don't think it would take I remember getting a call from... uh, Gosh, I forget who called me. And uh, Ray Price was playing uh, Craven nice. Craven Festival, and they yeah. were shorter, either a shorter fiddle player or something like that. And they had three fiddle players with them, and uh, it was all yeah, it was all sheet music. You just sight wow. reading the whole thing. And I probably could have taken the gig, but I was like, um, oh, I don't want to go there and crap my pants though, because <laughs> that's what I'd be doing. Absolutely. And I could probably, because that stuff wasn't that difficult. There were, you know, a lot of whole note, you know, things. Yeah. But I just, it had been so long since I looked at it. Yeah. And it's like, if I had it for a day ahead of time, I would have been be all over it. But um, Or if you knew what songs were being done and what part you were covering. Yeah, you could listen to the parts on the way. At least you'd have yeah. an idea and, and yeah. follow along. But yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, if you're not doing it every day, it's... It's, it's absolutely. Tough to keep, keep I that find out. I find now at my age, I'm 53 now. I'm finding that um, the ear isn't as acute as it used to be. And and by that I mean what I really mean by that is it actually is more acute. Um, but uh, I know, like it used to be when I was younger, I would you know listen to a song and then figure it out, and I thought I had it. But I wasn't, you know, some things was like, oh, wait a minute. Now I listen to those songs. I go, oh, wait a minute. I don't quite have that chord right there. And it might be little subtle things or it might be like, you know, add nines or that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, the ear is getting more in tune as I get older. Um, and, and But my ability to know what the, some of those complex voicings are. Is, and I think when you're younger too, there's part of you would be like, that's close enough. Yeah, it's close enough. Yeah. And then you get older and you realize getting it right is really important. So, you know, I think back when I was younger, you know, you you learn a part and you think, yeah, I kind of know the show and you get by and it was fine. But yep. now if I don't know something perfect or, you know, uh, or something's wrong, 
it really bothers me. And and have you found this as you get older? As I get older, my ear and my brain are more um, in tune with uh, with fluctuations in tempo. Yeah. So when a song on a record that I used to love as a kid, and I listen to it now, if it speeds up, because you know in those days nobody played the click tracks, so. Um, when a song speeds up or slows down, oh, I hear it now, and I never used to hear it, and it drives me crazy. I yeah. can't. I, I obsess about it. It's like as you get older, they say that when you see a picture hanging on a wall and it's not perfectly, you're you're you get more in tune with that. You're as you get older, and and just the slightest little bit off, you'd be like, oh, that picture's off, and you got to fix it. And that's yeah, it's totally me. Yeah, I'll, I'll be on tour and I'll I'll head during intermission. I'll go up to the merch table, and and the CDs are, I'll go straighten every single one of them. Fix every yeah, all the little signs. I'll straighten yeah. them all out, and it I can't stand it. I mean, that's a little bit of OCD. but yeah. it's also because we get we get finer tuned as we get older, and so for it it's so it's in music for me big time. It's reproducing stuff or playing stuff. If I I agree with you, if it if I don't have it perfect, I don't want to play it. Yeah. So going back with your first band, yeah, playing acoustic. So were you were you the lead singer or yeah, you, yeah, yeah. So what what music were you playing? Oh gosh, whatever was on the radio, like yeah. it was just top forty songs. And back in those days, that could mean just about anything. And in the my second group that I was in, which was called Black Diamond, and that was with Rob Pruce. Uh, who later went on to be in The Spoons and Honeymoon Suite yeah. and um, and another guy by the name of Mike Seville. Mike was the drummer. Rob was the keyboard player. I was the guitar player. We played all top 40. So we played uh, Peter Frampton, um, Queen. Uh, Rob still has some of the set lists from some of the shows we did. Wow. And it was crazy. I look at the set list now and I go, did we really play Show Me the Way by Peter Frampton and then go right into Una Paloma Blanca? <laughs> yeah, you would. And the and our we didn't know there was no such thing as genres of music. Nobody told us that's a polka song. You guys shouldn't be playing polka songs. You guys are a bunch of young, you know, rock musicians. You should just be playing rock tunes. That's the way Top 40 radio was back then. But back then, probably you were playing and people were dancing. Absolutely. So you would want to change it up because people would want to dance something different. Yeah, and we were probably playing at the German Hall. So yeah. we we knew, hey, Una Paloma Blanco will go over great with this crowd. So we yeah. learned it and we played that. And then we go right from that into like Firehouse by Kiss. Like, I'm not kidding you. Or Shock Me. Can you imagine the look? I'll never forget this. We played Big Al's Talent Showcase. Um, and we played Tie Your Mother Down by Queen. <laughs> now, my mom didn't say anything. My dad didn't say anything. Rob's parents, Mike's parents didn't say anything about the song maybe being inappropriate for 12-year-olds to be playing. But I remember playing it, taping the show, and looking at the parents of all the little kids, like the dancers and stuff like that. Yeah, And the parents were like, pulling their kids away and putting their hands over their ears because like the lyrics were like 
you know, tie your mother down, take your little brother swimming with a brick. That's all right. <laughs> tie your mother down and give me all your love tonight. This was a bunch of 12-year-olds singing this. But we didn't know. We just, I mean, this was top 40 music. We loved it. And that was a great, I, I remember Big Al. Oh. That was, that in Tiny Talent Time. Tiny Talent the, Time the with two Bill Lawrence. Yeah. And uh, Big Al is, uh, I know for... Uh, my brother and sister and I, that was the first time we ever played on TV. Yeah. The Walters Family Trio. Yes. Oh, that's what yeah. it was. We had a Rhythm Master drum machine. No way. Yeah. It's a big box thing. You know, I had... Yeah, exactly like that. I had a, a Rumba 1, Rumba 2, Cha-Cha 1, Cha-Cha 2, yeah. And the, the little the little knob that changed the tempo. Yeah. From 1 to 10. It was fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, I remember playing that show. Uh, a bunch of times with on, on Big L. Yeah. That was a big deal back then. Yeah. And he, um, <laughs> he, he always, he always, I remember I was going, what is that smell? <laughs> he was a real, he was a boozer. Oh yeah. Al, yeah. Al was a, was a, a nice guy. Such a nice guy. He had a, didn't he wear the, the blue suit and yeah, white? With the rhinestones? Yeah. Oh yeah. And the white cowboy, cowboy boots and the yeah. white hat. Oh yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And then Bill Lawrence on Tiny Talent Time. I'll never forget, you were on that. Yeah. On Tiny Talent Time, and I was on it. Unfortunately, somebody asked me recently, can we get a copy of you know our performance on Tiny Talent Time? And I said, I, I actually know a lot of people at CHCH, and back in those days, they would um, tape a show, air it. Six months later, they would air that same one again. Yeah. And then they would use that tape and they'd record another show over it. Oh, yeah. So all those are gone. But I remember Bill Lawrence would took us into his office and did the, the pre-interview. Because remember how we used to interview kids yep. live on the air? And he would ask you those questions like, if I could snap my finger and make a wish come true, what would it be? And I was always in awe because the kids on that show, their answers, they knew the answers right away. Like, they so, oh, that's what it is. Bill Lawrence takes you into his office and asks you all these questions beforehand yeah. and helps you model an answer. Great. Okay. All done. We're good. We get out on the floor and it's time for the interview. He asks us none of the questions that were on the page. And I, I remember a few of the questions. I, I, I just remember just stumbling going, <laughs> I guess I want to be prime minister someday. <laughs> yeah, I I remember on the Big Al show, or just when you're talking. Do you remember when you used to go in there? There was right next to us where they taped the news. Yeah. So while Big Al was taping, I remember I used to take off and go and sit in the chairs yep. of the newscasters. I got pictures. Yeah, I got pictures. But I used to always like slightly sabotage the set <laughs> <laughs> that was you i used to go in like they'd have all these you know spike tape marks all over the place and you'd move them i used to put them and stick them on the front of the uh the desk that's and awesome. then watch the next newscast to see if it's still there and they, they were there the one time it was there for like a month oh. there's like one piece of white tape on the front of the desk and it was there forever so you were a troublemaker i was i was too much of a rule kind of play by the rules kind of a kid. I remember going into the, the newsroom and there's nobody in there. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, we shouldn't be in here. We're going to get in trouble. We're going to, but we sat at the desk. We took some pictures and yeah. that was really cool, but we didn't touch anything. 
Yeah, you know, you, you think back then, I mean, there that was some great TV, and that really was great for, you know, young kids. Absolutely. Because it would totally encourage you as a child to want to learn either to dance or to play an instrument or sing or whatever it might be so that you could be on Big Al. Yeah. Because if you got on Big Al, it was a big deal. And same with Tiny Talent Time. Like yeah. you were a star at school. Whereas nowadays, I don't know, maybe people would look at that and go, so-and-so's on Tiny Talent Time. Let's go beat him up, you know? And those days, it was like a big deal. And you were you were highly regarded for your performances. Yeah, and now your choice, uh, American Idol. I mean, Canadian Idol doesn't exist any longer. No. Um, so, and then you're stuck with thousands of people just to try to get a spot on TV. What are your chances of getting on? And I think, again, the other problem with that is, and, and my, you know, my daughter Rosalind sings, and so many people said, oh, you should try to get on when Canadian Idol was on. And yeah. I said, I will never, ever let her go on one of those shows. And the reason is so much different, right? Like you could get on Big Al or you could get on Tiny Talent Time and some of the kids were terrible and some of them were great, but they all got the same spot. They all got the same encouragement. They all got the same applause. We yeah, all it was got, like equal billing for everybody. Yeah, equal billing for everybody. And the problem with these, with, with the, the American Idol and the voice and all that, so many people I think are slipping through the cracks and having their dreams absolutely crushed because somebody like Simon Cowell says, you know, you're terrible. And okay, a lot of times I will agree with them, but a lot of times I'll hear an artist that's maybe quirky, that's different, unique, and they'll be like, no, because, a, you know, they can't go up into the stratosphere with their vocal part and hold it there. And, and so all of a sudden you're no longer considered um, a good artist. That to me is is what's wrong with with that particular brand and genre of show. Yeah, it's well, you consider how many of those people who got to the point and got rejected, who are maybe a year away from being really great. Yeah, they're just not there yet. Yeah, and would leave and think, well, that's it, I'm done. Done, and and that's it, right? Like somebody has told them, and so now maybe hopefully some of those people still go on and try to pursue it. But I mean, if you took 10 of the, say, take the top 10 pop artists right now and put them, strip them of their identity and put them on American Idol. I bet you seven out of 10 of them might not get through that initial audition. No. Because they're maybe not just technically the greatest singer, but there's something characteristic about them. That's a problem with the music industry now. And that, uh, unfortunately... Uh, I mean, I, I really think that back in our day, everybody was encouraged, and, and that's why so many kids were doing it. Yeah, it's 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 not great. I mean, yeah. it's not... It's it's great if you... Well, it's not even great if you win. Um, no, like... I'd rather be third or fourth. I'd rather, uh, I'd rather be maybe in the top 10, yeah. Yeah, because winning, is, you know, you get tied up, and, and how many people have actually... I mean, there's been uh, quite a few that have done not, well, but there's quite a few that, that win that just think that's it. Yeah. Right? And about a week later, you know, American Idol's on, and then a week, two weeks later, 
America's Got Talent starts and you yep. forget about all the people you just were watching every week and you're yep. on to the next show. It's just like winning awards. I remember back in the in the 90s when I was doing country music and and you you would get so wrapped up in oh, I got nominated for this and then you would get so wrapped up in the the whole awards ceremony thing and and if you didn't win it was it it, it would crush you and and I remember thinking well, hang on. If you win the award, what do you actually get? You get about two days where you're doing radio interviews, and then that's it. It's it's like forgotten. Yeah, it's not. And the weird thing is you take a lot of the re, uh, awards. I mean, how many people are actually voting for those? Yeah. I mean, you're okay. Well, you're considered to be the best male vocal singer from these 200 people who voted. Yeah. I mean, and, could be less, could be more. Right. And, and it, let's be honest of those, you know, well, it, we, I mean, you, you know, yeah. we've been there. And 20% of those people probably are qualified to make a real good choice. And unbiased. Unbiased, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's the, but hey. But still, I mean, that's part of, um, that's part of anything. I mean. Any corporation or any business, they always have their awards. Yep. And it's a nice pat in the back. And then there's part of it that, you know, strives you to to keep going and keep making music. And But the, but the problem with the awards was, for me, it was like, as soon as that, as soon as the CCMAs was over, it was all about, okay, what can I do tomorrow to start working towards the next awards show? Yep. And it really shouldn't be about that. It really should just be about doing the doing what you love to do and doing the the music that is sincere to you and that is true to you and that is true to your heart. And, and I mean, that's ultimately what longevity is all about. Yeah. You know? I mean, for you, um, I, w- I want to go back, you know, a few more years again, but you've been able to take your career and just, you can just keep going forever for what you're doing with the Piano Man show. And you're playing for big audiences all the time, probably yeah. bigger than than a lot of the artists that who are have hits on the radio and, and you know, going out and struggling to have a tour bus and yep. and you know, they go home and, you know, count what they made at the end of a tour. Yeah. They pay their manager, their agent, their, you know, promoter and and you know, you pay all your fees. And by the time, you know, I look at some of these tours because I'm out promoting some tours myself. Yep. And I know what the numbers are. And I see, you know. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. I look at it and say, well, how can this be possible? Who's making any money and on this? And the general the public doesn't know anything about that. And mm-hmm. I remember myself not really knowing a lot about what that was all about. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Faith Hill had her first big hit with the Janis Joplin cover, Take a Little Piece of My Heart. Come on, take yeah. a little piece of my heart, baby. And all of a sudden, she's doing big shows. Um, and she's got a tour bus and all this. And I remember seeing her in an in, uh, interview, and they said, you know, the interview basically was, it must be so exciting to, to have finally made it. And she said, it's so exciting, and I've never been more broke in my life. Yeah. Meaning people don't understand that when you're first starting out like that, even with just maybe with one hit, um, the, the cost of going out on the road to promote that 
is phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's interesting following some some artists nowadays. I um, I follow Lindsay L mm. all the time. And, yeah, and she's fabulous on social media and all that. And man, that girl works. I mean, just every day she's yeah. flying somewhere and working. Yep. And every day I'm like looking at it, it's like, gosh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of money. She's yep. playing here, she's playing there. That's a lot of money. And, you know, new album out, first songs done yep. decent, but it's probably not, you know, which, you know, should probably where she'd want it. Yeah. But, you know, probably, you know, great, but it's, it's not make it's not money making great. Yeah. And no. said so someone's paying for that. It's no different than it was 30 years ago. No, it's I no mean, different at all. Yeah, it's, you know, someone's paying for it, but in the end, you're paying for it. Absolutely. People yeah. don't get that too. They, no. You know, if if you get signed with a record company, I remember thinking, oh, my record company's going to pay for, you know, this and that and the other, make the record and all that stuff. And then you have a hit and you go, all right. And, and you're selling records and you're like, oh, I'm selling records. I'm going to, I'm going to make some money. But the record company needs to recoup all of that money that they spent on you. And uh, you better be careful. I remember, I'm not going to name the artist, but it was an artist that was on Sony. And um, remember, they spent a couple million dollars making this record. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, what an absolutely crazy amount of debt. Yeah, the artist doesn't have to physically pay that back. But can you imagine you know where you have to be to recoup 2 million dollars for making a record? Like that's insane. Yeah, and how many of those got made and got shelved? This one did. Yeah. And that was the end of that career. I was I mean, I I I was lucky. My first record, I signed with a smaller independent label. FRE Records, Derek Ross, um, and admittedly, he said, hey, look, we don't have a ton of money to throw at you. And I'm like, that's great because I don't want to be uh, in debt to you for a crazy amount of money. I, I want to, let's make this work. So so we did it, I think, smart. And that the first, so that first record that I made in uh when I went down to Nashville in 92 and wrote with Johnny Douglas and, and we wrote that whole album in three days, four days maybe it was. We wrote the entire album, like two wow. songs a day. Yeah. And then recorded it in about a week. Um, the total cost for producing that first record of mine was $10,000, including producer fees. Wow. <laughs> and it was great because I literally... I think that record sold about 40, between 40 and 50,000 copies. So I literally got a check one day. Whereas if I'd spent $2 million making that record and and only sold 40,000 copies, it'd be a long time before I'd see any money from that. Yeah. So let's go back um, from your band to how you got to, you know, becoming, getting your first record deal. Yeah. What, what happened in between there? Um, so how are you, so are you saying before my first record? Yeah. Year? How'd you yeah. get to, you oh, know? So, so that was for me, like I was basically, um, 
I came out of high school and I knew I just I want to do music. I want to be a recording artist. I want to write songs. I want to make records. That's I don't know how I'm going to do it, but luckily I had um, a Canadian um, singer songwriter icon Ian Thomas. Um, I won a contest when I was in my last year of high school, and he kind of helped me just save a lot of time. Is like this is how you have a career in music. Can you just write? songs make demos send them in record companies follow up blah 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 so i literally had a system going where i would play in piano bars i'd play in piano bars at night for four hours a night just to make money that that was my that was my job so i wouldn't have to work during the day and i literally would write and record my own demos on my little four track recorder and then i had a book and i would call record companies in toronto and i would just I would talk with these guys and I would say, hey, is it okay if I send you a demo of, I just finished three new songs. Can I send them to you? And I would, yeah, go ahead. And what should I write on the, the envelope so I know you'll see it? And just little things like that. Yeah. And then I would, I would literally send it in the mail and then I would wait about three weeks and I would call them back and I'd say, hey, it's Jim Witter. Did you get my package? Oh, yeah, Jim, yeah. Let me just grab my notes. And they would give me constructive criticism. I wasn't having anybody, you know, bang on my door and say, oh, we're going to give this kid a record deal. I did that for like almost 10 years. And then it was Mike Roth from Sony Music that, in, and we had developed a relationship and it was a relationship based on rejection. It literally was, you know, hey, keep working at it. You know, I'm, I'm, I like, like that song on the last demo, but, you know, here's what I would change, blah, 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 but keep sending me new stuff. And finally, one day he, he did say, hey, um, because I was sending demos out as a, a writer, not as an artist. And he yeah. said, have you ever you know, thought of being an artist who sings his own songs? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, well, why don't you come in? We'll talk about an artist development deal. And that's when he sent me down to Nashville, worked with uh, Johnny Douglas. We demoed, we wrote some songs together. We demoed them up in a st real studio yeah. with real studio musicians. Um, but... And then that's how my first record deal came to be. But before then, like literally, I was doing I was doing the the piano bars and the coffee shops and the clubs on the weekends, and I did that for like ten years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's that's tough work, but it's important work, though. I think it's super important work because for me, what it taught me was like if you went into a, a club for a weekend you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, if you wanted to be invited back to do that job again, and there was only so many of them in the area. So, I mean, like, it's not like you had, you know, an unlimited number of places that you could play at. Yeah. You, you had to make the people there want to ask the owner, hey, have that gym guy back. And so I learned very quickly, it wasn't all about the music or your, it wasn't, certainly wasn't about your vocal proficiency or your, you know, whether you're a good keyboard player or a good guitar player. It was about how you engaged the audience. And sometimes you'd only have five people there. And you can't let those five people get up and leave without leaving some sort of impact on them. So I learned that the thing that the people in clubs and stuff loved was when you were personal with them, when you were just treated them like, Hey, you know, buddy, can I play something for you? What would you like to hear? You know this song? Um, well, I don't, but 
I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. You come back tomorrow night and I'll know it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so I would start, and, and so I had a number of places that I would play at quite regularly. But I, what I learned was the, the most important thing about a live performance you know, if, if you're one of those artists where your music has been out on the radio and it's been a hit song and people are coming to hear that, they're not just coming to hear that. They're coming to see what you're all about yeah. as a person. And so I made it a, a goal of mine to, to try to just sort of engage audiences anytime that I could, whether it was five people or 15,000 people at some big country fest in, you know, Merritt Mountain Music Fest or something. You think about what that skill does for you now with the piano man show. I mean, just the entertainment skill is so important. Um, it's absolutely the only reason that I'm still doing what I'm doing because I'm literally, I'm doing a show that literally should just be at the holiday inn in the lounge. No, but well, but <laughs> some people's version of it would be, okay, but not, yeah, yeah. But what I mean by that is, so I've, I've added, you know, the, the visual element to it. I've got a great band. Um, but on top of that, my show is about interaction with the audience and sharing stories and about the 70s, what the 70s meant to me. And you see people in the audience and, and, and they'll react to what I say and they'll yell something back to me and I'll talk with them about it. And that's the reason why I'm still doing this show 18 years later and going back to theaters um, eight, nine times with sometimes the same show, sometimes with a different show. Yeah. But um, that I can't stress to young, new performers the, the importance of that. And it's going back to this artist that $2 million was spent on this artist record and nobody at the record company, nobody checked to see if that artist could perform live. Oh, yeah. And I'll never forget, because you were there, but I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to say any names, but you were there. <laughs> you got to tell me after. You were there, and it was a big show. It was um, Hamilton Place, and it was a big show, and it was this artist, and then myself, and then I can't remember. It, it was a big, big country artist at the time. Yeah. Um, oh, I know exactly who you yeah. know. And yeah. I remember the performance, and I I remember it was it was technically good, but there was absolutely no engagement with the audience whatsoever. And within three songs, it was so boring. And I remember seeing the record company execs backstage because I was on the same same label, and they were losing their mind, running down the hall, going. Oh my God! What have we done? Like, and it was the realization: Oh, this artist can't perform. We we've got a lot of work to do here. But by that point, it was almost too late because yeah. everything was already launched. Yeah, I can't tell young new artists. I can't stress how important it is to learn how to just engage and be be yourself and engage with an audience and have fun with an audience because that's what they're there for. Yeah, it's so important. Even just simple things like visual contact. And you see so many people and, you know, one person's looking off here, another person. It's like, as soon as you look at your audience and be able to see a person here and see a person there, 
and make contact and it's just something there it just brings everybody in it absolutely does and it still does for me when i go yeah. see a show if i'm close enough to the stage and the artist looks right at me there's a feeling that 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 gives you so yeah and, and you'll see you'll hear a lot of performance coaches say look over the tops of you know people's heads to yeah. avoid being nervous or whatever it might be i think nerves really come from an, uh, a place because I, I used to get really nervous performing. I don't get nervous even slightly now. And I think it's all about confidence. Yeah. It's about knowing that what you do, you do a good job at it. So, I mean, but that takes years, right? That takes years. It takes to, forever, yeah. To get that confidence. It's not confidence that, yeah, I know I'm a great player and I know no. I'm a great singer. It's, it's confidence knowing if if I screw up, I know I can make myself look good because I can laugh at it. Or I can make a joke out of it. I can do whatever and not all of a sudden just clam up. And, and now everyone notices that something bad happened and that's, you know, you just feel confident that, you know, I can get the job done. And because who doesn't screw up? Everybody does. Everybody does. And that's the other thing I, I tell people, I say, you know, if an audience comes to see you, the thing you have to keep in mind is they want you to be good. They they want to enjoy themselves, but also they want to know you're a human being. So uh, making mistakes, and and <laughs> luckily I make lots of mistakes. Um, it's it's almost it it definitely it humanizes you to an audience and makes them realize okay well you know, he's, I, I love what that person, that artist does, but he's also a human being like me. And that, that is absolutely a, a huge part of learning to not be nervous is just knowing that everybody makes mistakes. Just get up there, do your thing. They want you to be good. Yeah. They want, they want to enjoy the show. They're not judging you. They're not, a, your audience isn't there to judge you. That's on American Idol and all those. This audience is there to have a good time. You have a good time too. It'll it'll really show up. But yeah, the whole bit of looking over people's heads or imagining them in their underwear and all that kind of stupid stuff. Um, I don't think any of that works. I think eye contact, individual eye contact is imperative. It's, it's imperative. Yeah, and being able to just engage in between songs and being yeah. able to feed off the audience. And, and really, when it comes down to it, you know, you might make a mistake, and how many people in the audience actually know? You're going to make a mistake. Yeah. But most people will have no idea that you made a mistake. Yeah. You could play the wrong. I've I've seen, I've had a couple groups I've worked with in the past. One was, it was unreal. The show was great as, you know, a front person was fantastic. I don't want to say who it was, but it was the front person was fantastic. The drummer was horrible. <laughs> and his fill-in guy... And, you know, it was one of these shows where they throw out a lot of songs and you just had to, you know, go with the flow. Yep. But could not play in 6-8. And I don't think you ever played in 6-8 or 3-4 or <laughs> at all. Didn't know the difference between straight and shuffle. Oh, that's funny. And it was weird because I've never sat in a show where I've seen drumming that just ended up in such a disaster. Yeah. He had chops. You know, he could play. Yeah. But didn't know the that era of songs right and 
And I think, oh gosh, these people are really going to complain. And after the show, people coming up to me, it was at our venue, saying, man, that drummer, I'm just waiting for it. Yeah. And they're like, he's fantastic. <laughs> and what it was, he was almost so scared that he had this kind of deer in the headlight look and he yeah. was playing and he was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and his expression and his body movement, yeah. I knew it was going through his head. Yeah. But as an audience member, they're looking, look at that drummer. He's Give so it. into it. He's just, look at him. <laughs> He's giving her. Yeah. But he was scared. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's but great. But it just shows you what people rather see the visual oh, and see that you're, ha you know, in their minds, they thought he was having a great time and he was really yep. just giving it. Yep. And even though it was the opposite, when it, you know, when it comes down to it, yep. people were loving him and it's I, fantastic. We get that comment almost every night, you know, because I go to the lobby after the show and talk to people and they, they always say, you guys look like you're having a really good time up there. Yeah. And I always tell them, that's because we are. Like we don't, first of all, we don't take ourselves seriously because it's not really, it's not brain surgery or anything like that. It's, it's a, it should be a fun business. And, um, and I encourage the guys in the band to have a good time. And, you know, after a show, sometimes, you know, one of the guys will go, oh man, I, I really, you know, I'm sorry I let you down tonight. I really screwed him. It's like, do you think, first of all, that any of the things you're talking about, you know, if you missed a fill on this or you missed this note or whatever, do you think, A, first of all, most of the time I don't notice. Do you think any of the audience ever notices? Yeah. It's not about that. It's about how you how they perceived you had a good time. And it looks like we have a good time because we do have a good time. And that's the number one most important thing. Yeah. But there is a part of it, I think, ownership of something can be important if you're new to a gig or filling in if you screw up i always tell uh, a lot of the tech guys i send out on the show if you do something if you're front of house you're doing lighting or whatever it is and you mess up own it own it yeah intermission after the show straight to the artist say hey yeah. You know, I'm sorry I missed that cue or this happened. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll try to make sure it doesn't happen again. I'm like, great. But if you if you don't say anything, and I've been on the other end where I'm on stage and something I know has happened, yeah. you know, went in front of house or for lighting, whatever it could be. Yeah. And you sit in there, it's like, did they know that happened? Yeah, yeah. Or did they screw up? Because you don't know. Yeah. So do you need to bring it up or do you wait to the next time? Yeah. If someone comes to you and say, yeah, I'm sorry, man. And it's like, great, no problem. Yeah. But if if you, if you don't say anything, then it sits in your head for, you know, until the next show, you don't yep. know. It's like, oh gosh, what happened? Do I do it? I, I do it. To, I yeah. own up every night after yeah. the show. I'll say if I, if I have a particularly bad show, technically for whatever reason, just, you know, clunkers today's show, I had some serious clunkers there and it's like, Right after show, I was like, oh, geez, I'm sorry, guys. I really, you know. But it's not, it, I'm apologizing, but I'm just more acknowledging that, hey, I'm human. It's yeah. okay. I screw up. You guys screw up once in a while. 
that is hugely important because I would rather have somebody uh, playing in my band who owns up to their mistakes um, as opposed to somebody who makes an excuse like, oh, the reason I did that tonight was because of this or, you know. Yeah, because the excuse thing, you can, you know, that gets old really quick. You can maybe get one in, but, you know, if you're working with someone who's polished, you can see through that in a second and we all know guys that do that and oh yeah um (laughs) and you know it's just one of those things you just it i think what ownership is when you make a mistake or you've done something that maybe you didn't feel was good and you just say hey guys sorry at the end you know sorry about that it proves to everyone you're working with that you actually care yeah and that you actually you know, care the fact that, yeah, I'm sorry that, you know, it's not that you're letting anyone down or, no, you know, or any of that. It just shows that I'm in this. I care. Yep. It means a lot to me. You know, I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. And I'll try like, not to make it happen again. Yeah. And then, hey, it, yeah. then it just rolls off and you yeah. never think about it again. Yeah. You're done. I mean, I have one guy in, in, in my band who, who apologizes probably every night and doesn't need to. Yeah. And, and that just shows me that yeah, there's there's a great deal. Um, he loves loves the gig, and and he feels bad. But I I I, al- I also feel like, am I making him feel like he's not worthy of this or something, and that he has to apologize to me all the time? It's like, and you'll say, oh, oh, sorry, I really screwed up tonight. I'll be like, did you hear me? <laughs> I I think the best situation, and I love this when you're on stage, and you guys obviously are like this uh your group if you make a mistake everyone laughs yeah and, oh, yeah and if everyone laughs um oh yeah then it's you know yeah it's great i know yep. and i've worked gosh I, and i'm so used to doing that and i've been in situations where you know i've been in playing with someone or someone's playing with me uh, on a show somewhere and they make a mistake and i kind of turn around and i laugh you know and they just look at you like what are you laughing? And it's at? like yeah, yeah. Oh, you almost feel like oh well, you 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 made a mistake there. I was yeah. just laughing. Yeah, and uh, they're so scared to admit that they did something they, wrong. They made a mistake, yeah. That you know, it's like okay, no, I I hear a lot of things. You yeah. know, I I hear every little tiny thing that goes on. I just <laughs> so used to being tuned into everything. So I just like that's funny. You know, yeah. you made it like that was really funny. Yeah, and and it's really easy for people to to take offense that oh, was he laughing? You know, yeah. I didn't, you know, it's like, no, no, that's, you know, that's fun. Let's, you know, just have a good time. But what annoys me is if somebody makes a mistake and does that, oh, damn face, that one, like, ah, yeah. oh, just made a mistake. It's like that to me, the laughing thing is more of an inside joke. And I think most of the time the audience, like, what are they laughing at? Is that something somebody, that lyrical thing? Did somebody do something funny? You know? They don't know. They don't know. But when you make that face, that ah, that face, it's quite obvious. Okay, you made a mistake, and you're disappointed. You're mad. You're upset. I don't like it when guys do that on stage. Yeah, never let people know that you made a mistake because ninety five percent of the audience won't know that you made a mistake. But now you're pointing something else out. Yeah, and now they're looking and saying, "Oh, what happened there?" Yeah, I mean, why is he? Why is he so disappointed? Yeah, and. You know, they could be thinking of, it could be something completely different than what they're thinking. Maybe yeah. he's, you know, he or she is shaking their head. Yeah. 
and or making some type of you know whatever gesture screwed up and someone could be talking at the time or doing a yeah. solo at the time yeah and some people someone might think oh, are they looking at are they thinking that person who's playing the solo now did something wrong yeah. or they have no idea so I, I used to um a guitar player that played with me for years his name was robin mcquarrie yeah and robin was a phenomenal guitar player and the band that he played in before me there was another guy in the band and when robin would make mistakes this guy would literally shake his head and roll his eyes and and robin after the show one night said hey um i noticed you were reacting when you know i made a, a hit a few clunkers there i appreciate it if you didn't do that cuz it's visual thing the audience is sees you know that yeah. you're rolling your eyes at me and i guess he kept doing it and this guy was a keyboard player <laughs> this guy was a keyboard player and so robin just got fed up with it one night and when this guy you know robin hit a clunker and this guy went <sighs> and rolled his eyes like this robin went over to his keyboard took the headstock of his guitar and did one of those glissanos down the keys and snapped about six keys off, <laughs> off right off the keyboard just messed this keyboard up and uh he never did it again yeah that's the worst though when someone's rolling their eyes at that's something you, you did yes. yeah that's oh that's just like there's no one that's that good no there's nobody that good yeah oh yeah that's that's a tough one i remember seeing queen when i was like 12 or 13 years old at Maple Leaf Gardens. And Brian May steps up to the front of the stage to play a solo. I um, can't remember what song it was on. But first note, he steps up and it's this grand moment where now, bum, 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 and Brian May is going to play. And he first note, like at least two frets off, like way off. And he automatically throws his hand over his mouth in one of those <gasps> kind of moments. Like he realized that was a clunker. Yeah. And he didn't try to cover it or or anything. He just, he owned it. And the audience went crazy. Now he went on, obviously, to play the solo flawlessly. But that moment of, I you know, recognizing, okay, I screwed up, I made a mistake. And guess what? I own it was huge yeah it endeared him to the audience it's it's one of the moments that i that i remember from that that show yeah because that stays with you that's 1977 that's a long time ago so let's go back to the first album yeah um so you got a development deal with sony yeah um the first album got done for 10 grand which is pretty awesome yeah and in and like i said we literally recorded all the bed tracks i remember this was my first experience with nashville session players yeah and it was great i remember just being in awe they'd be like okay play your song and i grab my guitar and i'd be like uh okay and i play the song and they all got little pieces of paper and they're all scratching down these numbers i'm like what the? i, I had no idea what the number system was i yeah. had no idea what they were doing and they they sort of I finish the song and they go, all right, let's go. And they go out onto the floor, they get on their instruments and within three minutes, we're rolling a take of this song and they're playing stuff that just blew my mind. That was 
for me. It's so exciting. And we recorded that entire album in, the beds were in four days. I did my vocals in three days, and then they mixed in three days. So it was 10 days. Yeah. That whole album was done. That doesn't happen very much anymore. I don't think so. I think, you know, well, it depends, you know. I think some people, if they're going to take two years to do it, they're going to take two years to do it. I guess. And some people like that process where it's, you know, they just go and, you know, just redo and, you know, it's a, it's like building a house. Um, but I like getting getting in there and getting it done. I think there's a huge uh, benefit, especially when you're working with great musicians like that, to being able to keep one of those first takes because they're spontaneous, they're full of energy. And these guys know too, when they've you know made a mistake, they can just punch in and fix. These guys are masters at it. I mean, it's crazy. You know, at the end of a take, they'd be like, okay, I think that's the take. And then the bass player would go, um, punch me in uh, at the end, uh, bar three, yeah. uh, second verse. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. They know exactly where they know it exactly was. where they made a little mistake. So the over, so the punch ins would be done literally within five minutes and we would have, and I think there's something about that. I remember talking with, um, I worked, worked with this, um, engineer, Ron Snake Reynolds, who, uh, who worked, um, well, he actually turned down one of Shania's records um, working on it because he knew that Mutt was one of these guys that just loves to... Yeah. He, his, his process is very different. It works for him. Yeah. But I guess a lot of the session players, he Ron knew these guys, and he said some of these guys were like ready to kill themselves after one session because... They would finish a you know a three hour session and they wouldn't even finish getting through the first verse of the song. Yeah, and like you know what it's like a three hour session. We should be able to cut three songs easily, full songs, in that amount of time. Yeah, but still a lot of guys do that. A lot of guys will take and they'll take multiple multiple takes. Yeah, um, and then they'll take bits and pieces of each multiple take and assemble a song. And uh, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It just, it's not, I can't get my head, I, it doesn't get me excited about no. anything. No, I just, it's, I cut um, uh, an album. I, it, was, it was just uh, uh, a quick album, cover songs, uh, about a month ago. Maybe, no, a couple months ago. And said, okay, I'm going to need, it's going to be a good, solid two days. It's 14 songs, even though they're, you know, just cover songs. Yeah. They're going to take some time. You know, and I got the good guys in. John Diamond was on the session, and all those guys. Chappie was playing, and um, it was like eight o'clock the first night. Fourteenth song done. Yeah, and we didn't get rolling till like noon. Yeah, it was like eight hours. Fourteen songs. Fourteen Bam. songs, and it yeah. sounds really good. Yeah, and it was just like okay, we weren't making a hit album, but man, it sounded really solid, and and it was they able to bang it out, and that's you know. It's and it's there's something that comes from those first few takes, That's especially they, vocal. I mean, yeah, we've worked together in the studio a lot. Yeah, and I even know with you, uh, when you get to the vocal, I want to make sure, and it's a big, big deal that every time someone goes to that that microphone, even if you're going to do a test run, oh, let's roll the song and see. You know, you better make sure that record button's hit. Yep, because that first take 
might be the magic. Yeah. And yeah. It, most of the time is I find, especially doing vocals, if you're if you're half hour in and forty five minutes in, still working on the first song, maybe an hour in, you might as well pack it up and for the day. Yeah. Yep. And go home or go to something else for a while or or take a break, walk around and yep. and get away from it and and come back. Because but usually, um, unless there's some trouble spots and there's some learning to do, those first you know, two or three takes are the ones. I think they're the magic. And I think a two, a lot of times, I mean, like that's how the Beatles made records. That's how everybody made records back then because they didn't have the luxury of just continually doing overdubs and, and limitless number of tracks. So, I mean, it was all about the song and the performance was like a unit. It was like one thing. And I think, um, I think it shows. I think it shows. I and I listen to some of my favorite songs and and yeah, the take isn't perfect, but the character behind it is is what drives the song. And if you just you know continue in the studio to go over and over and do a new take and a new take and a new take, it sucks the life out of the song eventually. And it's funny and you know, we've all done that at certain times. Yep. And you come back to the song two years from then, you don't hear any of those things you were listening to nope. at the time. Nope. Like it, it doesn't make an impact to you at all. So what was I thinking about yeah. that song? I've yeah. Because you get so in tuned, listen to every single tiny little yeah. thing, getting everything perfect, and then you know, there's maybe there's something still bugging you, whatever afterwards. But you come back to it after a while. If it's good, it's you know, you don't you don't remember any of those things. Even a mix. You can be mixing all day long. You come back the next day and you play it once. Like, yeah, that's that's fine. What was yeah. I thinking about yesterday? Yeah. What was on my mind? Or if you obsess, and I remember Ron Reynolds told me this too because he was a fast mixer. He would mix a song like we'd we'd literally fix. We'd mix. He'd dial up a mix in a couple hours. We'd listen to it. We'd make a few little tweaks, and boom, it's done. And he, he always would tell me his. his this was a great um, line. A mix is never finished. It's just abandoned. Yeah. Because he said, there's nobody in this industry. He says, you know, you're going up there to accept your Grammy Award for, uh, you know, um, Song of the Year. And it's be like, you want to say, thank you. You know, if I could just do the vocal one more time. <laughs> yeah. But there are people out there like that. Oh, and I was yeah. like that. I was like that. I always would, you know, finish a vocal take and then I would come back and listen to it and I'd be like, oh, I think I can do that better. And they'd be like, no, it's great. It's fabulous. It's perfect. It's, it's, but it wasn't technically perfect. And I think that's what I kind of got um, caught up in sometimes was that the performance wasn't technically perfect, but it was what the song needed. Yeah. I think producing vocal sessions is probably the hardest part of doing an album just getting it right but for me 90 percent of it is the attitude of the person when they come in the studio oh 100 yeah i've sent um i was working on this album and uh the artist you know we're just working on you know coming in every few days and, and trying to spend a couple hours doing some vocals and this artist was kind of going through some stuff. Yep. And, you know, they would show up and say, how you doing? Oh, I had this fight with my boyfriend. I said, all right, see you tomorrow. Yeah, because there's no sense. Yeah, yep. send them home. Yep. I was like, no, 
this this I'm not putting you through this. No. Nope. Unless it's a song that I really need to pull something right. really emotional from. When right. I, and I've done that where, you know, you know, I've taken an artist who's, you know, learning to find that spot, you yep. know. And you I know you can you can go there instantly. It's an instinct you get where you can if you need to find that special spot, you know where to go, right? Yep. If you need to get something with feeling, yep. you need to something you need to pour out, you have to take yourself somewhere. Yep. And it's usually somewhere tragic in your life or yeah, somebody so that, somewhere very dark yeah yeah and i've had artists where i've worked uh i know thinking of one particular and i said okay tell me about the saddest day of your life yeah and they're like why no i just want to let's talk about it. i want to know and it was like a grandparent passing away and it went on and on and we talked about it for like an hour and then we just kind of finished the conversation just kind of ended and we we're like all right, let's sing. Go sing. And it was magical, the yeah. first take. And yeah. second take, no, it was that first take because then second take went back to thinking about it again. Third yep. take went back to thinking about it, but that first take was great. Well, I and I remember um, I took uh, voice lessons from Ed Johnson. He was a famous, um, I don't know if he's actually even still alive or not, but he was a famous um, vocal coach and he coached... Uh, you name, you name it in Canadian music, he's coached them. And I got to take lessons from him for years. And I remember him telling me that although he was teaching me technical, he, he told me, listen, singing is 85% mental and 15% physical. Yeah. So he was so he was using it to, to explain why if you think you're not gonna be able to hit this note, you're not because it's 85% mental. That also uh, has so much to do with the emotion because it's 85% mental. And if you're not in the right mental space for that particular song, you won't, you won't sell it. That's a huge part of a song. A good vocal performance is, like a good, is basically a good acting performance. Yeah. And it's selling that song it's not just singing words and notes and technically hitting them and that's why so many singers and myself first included close their eyes is because sometimes you have to do that to get into that space that you need to be at mentally to yeah. perform that song yeah it's not you just like i said you have to go somewhere you have to and you could be in front of a hundred thousand people yeah if you need to take yourself there Yep. You have to shout out 100,000 people on your yep. brain yep. and just go there. Yep. Yeah, it's a huge part of it. And I think a lot of times, too, and I, and I think that's the reason why when you see actors, famous actors, sing, that, and ones that can sing, you go, wow, they're really good. And it's because they understand. And they may not be technically good, but they can sell a song. And, and it's the reason is because they know that singing is is acting it's getting into a role and performing that role for those three and a half four minutes or whatever it might be you yeah. and you have to be there you have to believe it you have to you have to feel those lyrics and you have to believe them it's a huge part of of uh, a legitimate and sincere performance that's uh for me that's working with you over the years your biggest skill i I always tell everybody, it's like, yeah, Witter, when he comes in the studio, he can just step up 
and he can nail it. Yeah. Like it's pretty well, you know, I've never had to think that, oh, let's take a break or let's, you know, go back to this song. Let's work on this. It's always bam. You can, you, you're able to take yourself to wherever you have to go to, to get the job done. And, but it's tough for a lot of people to be able to, to do that. Well, and I think too, a lot of people in the studio worry about pitch and things like that. Yeah. And, and I never, ever worried about pitch because A, I didn't feel like it was as important as it ne- as people think it should be. Like, listen to Adele. Her actual recordings, like some of, some of her notes are horrendously pitchy. Yeah. But you cannot say for a second that the performance is not stellar because it, it's just full of character and emotion. And I think that's the key thing. When you step up to the mic to sing a song, you have to not, you definitely can't focus on pitch because if, if you're focusing on pitch, you're going to miss the whole point. And now you can fix it. And you can fix it. Exactly. I mean, back in the day, you know, probably the, the big thing about growing up in a time where there was an auto tune yeah. is that you learned to sing in tune yeah. at the beginning. And then now you can actually think about other things. Yeah and not worry about it. But you've already tuned that part in, so you're already going to be darn close. Yeah. So, you know, same thing. I, I like to get, I don't, I've gone through so many different ways of figuring out how to get a good vocal. And now it's for me, it's just like, I want two or three solid emotional performances, whether it's up, down, or whatever it is. Yeah. And then I know if I need to take something, you know, a line or a word from somewhere, because I don't, nowadays, I don't like punching in vocals, you know, let's no, grab. I've never been a fan yeah, of that, but. I used to do that, near, you know, back in the day on two inch and, you know, yeah. okay, we need to get the, and, you know, this sentence in the second line of the whatever, and you, and you're punching in single words yeah. and, you know, you get really good at just, you know, bam, bam, you know, yeah. you're, you're in and out, but there's you, you can't get single words or a line even a line in a verse let's punch this in you've lost your momentum yeah totally yeah and i can hear it i can hear vocals that's like oh that was punched oh yeah i can and hear that's it. a totally different day or that's a different it's a you different, know well that a, was 45 minutes later or whatever yep. it was yep it's funny how your mind gets tuned to that because there's a cheryl crow um record that I hear a very, very obvious punch. This is like, you know, an album that probably costs, well, huge amount of money, great producer, great engineers, but you can hear the punch. You yeah. can hear it, and it's the character of the, the vocal performance is different. Everything about it is different. It's, but I've played that for people. So can you believe this? Listen to this. This slid by. They got by, and they're like, what are you talking about? I don't hear it. I guess your ear gets kind of trained for that. Yeah, of you get you get tuned in and hearing those little yeah changes, slight yeah. changes because you're that's yeah. what you're trying to you want to match something up. You don't want something to to stand out. You get so used to listening to that, and yeah. then then you realize afterwards, it's like, well, it's not that big of a deal. Exactly. But, yeah, not at all. So your first your first album, what what were some of the songs on? Were is that that's that when you started to get some songs on the radio? Yeah. So that the first song on the radio was everything and more. Yeah. That was the first one off that album. That album also had um, Stolen Moments, um, uh, Sweet, Sweet Poison, 
um, Distant Drum. So those are big songs. Yeah, I mean, I mean we had, I think we had five top ten hits off that. It's interesting. Record. I always say that first one or two songs that get on the radio is always those songs that everyone's going to remember. Absolutely. Like if you go back, if you you know, probably if you think someone mentions Jim Witter. Probably the first thing they're going to mention or think about stolen moments. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, and the funny thing is, is stolen moments almost didn't make it on the record, and and I, I remember, um, well, actually, when we tracked stolen moments, it was a full band performance, so it was like, um, you know, stolen moments, and there was like train beat behind it yeah. and there was you know pedal steel and there was piano and there was bass and there was electric guitar and acoustic guitar and when when we started mixing that album um they they did a mix of stolen moments with the full band and then when it was done we had some time left in the studio and i turned to the producer johnny i said hey can can we just try something i just want i just want to hear what this would sound like he's like what i go can you just mute everything but the acoustic guitars and the vocals on stolen moments i want to hear what it sounds like and he did he he and so they played it back and he's like oh that's i kind of get what you're going at here but it was missing something so i there was a there was a dx7 in love those yeah (laughs) just like lying up against the wall like that keyboard over there is and I said, can you fire up the DX7 and just put like a little pad on there and I'll, I'll play it. And so I just played like this little pad behind there. And then it was like, okay, now, yeah, I hear where this is going. And then they called um, uh, mandolin player came in and threw in the mandolin part. And that was it. And then that in, in, and then luckily Johnny was like, and agree, he agreed with me, he says, yeah, this is the mix. So we presented it to the record company, and I remember they went through the, all the songs, and they said, "Well, we like them all, but Stolen Moments is—it's just—it's—it's uh, it's okay. It's just a filler song. It's—and um, it, it almost didn't make it on the record. Wow. They literally didn't want to put it on the record. I said, just put it. Just—it's personal. It's a really personal song for me. I wrote it for my boy. Can you just please put it on there? And they said, okay, we'll put it on there. And then it was actually the people at radio. That were like, once they got the the album, they they said, "Hey, can we play this song?" Because, um, and and so that organically became a single. It was never really supposed to become a single. And then, um, and then the video for that song was shot when we were in the middle of shooting Distant Drum. Oh yeah. And we were shooting Distant Drum up in Collingwood. And. You know, when they shoot videos, they like to shoot them in the early morning or at dusk. Like, uh, middle of the day is not good for outdoor shooting because the sun's right overhead. There's no shadows. It's yeah. really bland looking. That so it was the it was that sort of hour, like a couple hours. There was like noon to like three, where they was like, no, we're not going to do any shooting. Everybody take a break. And we were sitting around at my parents' cabin, and um, the video director said. Hey, um, isn't your next single uh, going to be um, "Stolen Moments"? Because we'd been talking about that, and I said, "Yeah, Radio picked this song, and they they think it should be the next single." He goes, "Well, why don't we shoot the video for it right now?" So they set up a little track there, and I sat on the front porch of my parents' uh, 
house in the woods there and I played along and they filmed that and then they did a bunch of b-roll and that became the video and that was and that year that one video video of the year at the uh, Canadian Country Music Awards at wow. CCMAs and I I remember it beat videos that cost like a hundred thousand dollars and we we put the the final number on that one at just below five thousand dollars to make Jeez. to make that video for that song that's great so again you know it just goes to show you that um for me it's it's all about you know producing something that means something to you and and people will recognize that and yeah. people will and that and that is that's the song that if anybody remembers anything from that record, that's the song. Uh, so did you start, that's when you started touring, obviously, as yeah. well? Yeah. Yeah. Like crazy to promote that record. So what was touring like then? Well, it was it was a lot different than it is now for me. First of all, it was like a lot of afternoon spots and a lot of um, like, you know, hey, we got a night off in uh, Yorkton, Saskatchewan and um, nights off when you're a starting artist kill you because you got to pay for hotel rooms yeah. for you and your band. You got to pay per diems. Um, everybody's got to eat, you know. So we we never had a night off, even if it was playing at a bar for two hundred and fifty dollars. I remember playing for two hundred and fifty dollars and rooms. Yeah. So we got hotel rooms. Well, that was great because that covered that cost. And and then, so you'd play that bar that day. And then the next day, you might be opening for Trisha Yearwood at a massive festival with 30,000 people. And then the next day, again, you might be playing another club somewhere for 50 people for the door plus food, you know, like... It they was, paid the rooms. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and so that's what touring was like in those days. And that was great because I was young and I didn't, I didn't mind going out literally for three months uh, and playing like almost virtually every single night. Um, so touring was, was rough. And I mean, we would literally, I remember we would literally finish a show and get in the van. We had a van pulling a trailer. We'd get in the van and we'd drive all night long just to get to the Calgary Stampede pancake breakfast the next day to play that. We'd roll out <laughs> roll out of the van with our, you know, just like maybe you got 40 minutes of sleep and your eyes are red and your hair is a mess and you smell and get up on stage. You've been there. You've done those tours. Yeah, you know what? It makes for a great band. I mean, you get good because you're playing all the time. You know, today, which is tough, you know, everyone, it's, you know, it's everything's so scattered. Yeah, yes. everyone hops on the plane. You know, everyone's band is probably one guy's in this city, another guy's on the other side of the country, and everyone's kind of joins up and they you play a gig and then oh we play again we'll see you in a couple of weeks or next weekend or yep. maybe if you're lucky you get a gig the next night yep and uh it'll be all good but man you don't get tight no and the other thing we were doing because we were playing every night and we had a front of house guy traveling with us by the name of rich hagan i think you know rich yep. and rich was um he would 
make board tapes every single show. And we'd get in the van and we'd literally listen to the board tape because that's how you know what the show really sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> Parts, right? And you'd, and you'd, you'd listen and everybody cared. Everybody'd be like, oh, wow. Like that part I'm playing there is not really working. So they would adjust it for the next night. Oh, yeah. That band, by the time we were done that first tour, man, we were tight. But we had some great players. I mean, we had Ed Pee Wee Charles. Um, Playing steel. steel with us. Um, uh, my drummer at the time was Jimmy Scotland. Jimmy was a great drummer. Jimmy was so solid. And Jay Real was on the drums too yeah. for a number of those tours. Um, you know, and this guy, Robin McCory, was my guitar player back then. Man, that guy just. Robin's great. Phenomenal player. We could do a podcast just on a Robin stories. Oh, Robin <laughs> McQuarrie stories. Shaker stories. Yeah. If Shaker's listen into this, geez, I won't share them because they're, they're they're absolutely unbelievable. I tell complete strangers, people that don't have a clue who this guy is, I tell them the story, the Audubon story, the, the Audubon rest. story, <laughs> and I I have literally had guys pee their pants. They're laughing so hard at this story, and they can't believe it's true. And it's you know, what's that? You can tell that story about when he. Uh... What he did with that B3 microphone. Oh, that's that was <laughs> I still think that's the I funniest. can't remember that's a sound guy a lot. That I think that's the funniest thing. Th- this is a this is a great this is a great um not a kind of revenge. I guess it was a little bit of revenge. But we were we were again, this was one of those pickup gigs where we were playing some dance somewhere. But we so we were actually the feature band. We were to play an hour set, and then there was a dance band coming on after us. Yeah, and the dance band—I can't remember who they were—but but these guys had serious attitude. Like they thought they were great because they were closing the show, but it wasn't really. They were just the dance band. They yeah. were for after the show. We were the show. Anyways, didn't matter. I didn't care. But they were given attitude to Robin, the guitar player, and so. We're done our show. We're packing up, and these guys are getting on stage, and we're we're leaving now. We don't have to stay, so we're leaving, and we're walking down the hallway to go out of the venue. And the keyboard player had a B three hooked up to a Leslie speaker cabinet, but because it was there was no room on stage, he had the cabinet in the back hall, and <laughs> all mic'd up, and all mic'd up with a fifty seven. It was a mm-hmm. fifty seven. On the on the Leslie, and we're just walking down the hallway, just nonchalantly, just walking down the hallway, leaving, and without even missing a beat, he just Robin just reaches down, grabs the fifty-seven, lifts it up to his mouth, and goes like this, (laughs) (laughs) and all you can hear is the sound in the dance hall. All you can hear is the play, like, boot scoot and boogie. And all you can hear is this, just screaming through the hall. And then he puts the mic back down and just, keep and just keeps walking. Doesn't even, it was, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe he did it, but he did. I miss that guy. So do I. Yeah. So, and I've got stories about him that I would never tell. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Because yeah, he was, he was, uh, he he was an intense guy. He he liked to work, really hard worker, really yeah. hard worker. But he played really hard too, and and he had, 
he had lots of fun. Yeah. Yeah, great guy. So that album happened, and you had a bunch of great songs on that. Then uh, what was the next step after that? So then, so this next step from that was, so we were on a smaller independent label, FRA, but it was distributed by EMI. And um, EMI was working with Curb Records in uh, Nashville, and they basically said to Curb, you should have a listen to this this guy, Jim Witter, his record did well up here in Canada, and I think he might be a good fit for Curb. And so I remember Derek Ross and I, who and Derek was with the record label, he was also managing me. At the same time, we drove down, we had a meeting with Mike Curb, and we got there, and uh, we just sat in his office, and we chatted for like two, three hours. And it was weird because we, we really just talked about the music industry and what Curb was doing. And we kind of left the meeting and I, I kind of turned to Derek and I, I said, um, what happened? Like, did, did we say, did we talk about a record deal or anything? He's like, yeah, it was kind of weird. It was sort of one of those meetings where nothing was really like, Welcome to Curb Records. Yeah. You know, there was nothing. It was just like we just chatted for super nice guy. I really like Mike Curb. And then it was like Monday, he gets a call and Mike goes, So, um, when do you guys want to start? And he's and Derek's like, Start start? Yeah, start working on Jim's record. Like, oh, um, well, um and then that's when we realized, oh, we got to yeah. deal with Curb Records. So, I mean, it it was it was um, it was a number of years with Curb, and it was great. And at the same time, it was a, a dark time in my career because um, I was used to things being done so quickly. at At Derek's label, FRE, it was a smaller independent label, and we said, "Let's make a record." Like two weeks later, we had a record done, and let's you know, do this. And it, and it was done because they didn't really have the resources, the money or the time to really fudge around a lot. And we, we discovered quickly what it's like to be with a major label. And, you know, it took months and months to, for them to just decide who was going to produce my record. And then they put me with this guy, Nelson Larkin, who's a legendary producer. He produced BJ Thomas and just tons of big stuff. And let, Nelson was a great guy loved him but things were really slow moving it was you know the song picking process and 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 um it took like literally six months maybe even a year to get like three or four tracks done with nelson wow. and finished tracks and it was very frustrating for me and and then we we took those four tracks to mike curb and he listened to them, and he just kind of went, yeah, it's not really the direction I kind of envisioned for for you. I think maybe I want to try a different producer on you. And I'm going, oh, my God. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're, now we're losing momentum. You know, we've already been through now two CCMA awards in Canada, no new material from, from, from me, and, um, and then... Chuck Howard joined the the team, and Chuck Howard 
fabulous producer, great guy, love him. But again, things were moving really, 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 really slow. And that was a really sort of dark time in, in my life because I was devoting every bit of energy and and time, anything that I had towards this project. And meanwhile, back home, my wife, Rebecca, we're raising a family. She's working as a nurse. She's basically supporting the family at this point because I'm not doing any gigs um, other than, you know, SoCan money coming in. That's the only money coming in, and it's not a lot. And not enough to raise a family, that's for sure. And um, and then we sat on, on... Chuck, we made finally made a full record, and that was delivered to Curb, and then Curb kind of gave it to the radio people, and they kind of just kind of went, eh, not 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 really what we want for the market down here. So at this point, then we say, okay, well, can we at least please just release it in Canada? And that's when the that that album was all my life, and that was you know with Steve Warner was on that record, and yep. Steve and I wrote a bunch of songs on that one together, and I did some covers and we did some videos, and and it did pretty well in Canada. It did, but it didn't have the same success as the first album, and I really feel like it's because we just had lost so much momentum because yeah. momentum is so key in yeah. this in this industry, and that's why it's really hard if you go away as an artist for five years. And show up again. It's like the American Idol effect. Exactly. You're on TV, and then if you don't get that single out right away, and it doesn't do well, or wow. whatever you're doing, if you don't jump on it, then you know the worst thing for those guys. They think it's great, but they go on tour right away, and it's probably the worst thing for them because yep. they're all of a sudden it's like, yep. it's like all those oh, yeah. you know, no time for meetings, no time to start you know knocking on doors and hey, I was this you know I was third on an Idol and. And, you know, you finish four months, five months later, they finish a tour, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, what do we do now? I mean, when you, when you disappear from radio um, and, and you've built relationships with these people, um, you, can't, you, can't, you can't go away for five years. And even back then, because there wasn't, there wasn't uh, Facebook or there wasn't, no. there's was no way to, you know, keep yourself nope. connected with your audience. Nope. Um, you just had, they were just waiting for the next song. Yep. And so eventually they just kind of went, oh, I guess he's done. And that's that. They were still playing the old stuff. And I mean, they yeah. still do now. Like I still get airplay on stolen moments for crying out loud, but but not on the same kind of rotation. Yeah. So, you know, you, you need to be out there with fresh new material. And so that was very, that was a frustrating time for us. So then we got to a point where um, Mike Kerb pulled me in and said, hey, uh, you know, I notice a lot of your music has a really strong inspirational message. Have you ever thought of making a, a contemporary Christian album? And I basically said, well, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, I don't really know a lot about that industry, but um, here's what I feel like I can make a record like this. Um, and we made it mm-hmm. here with you. Yeah. And we made the, the Forgiveness album. And, um, and then again, then Curb ended up kind of sitting on that. They wanted me to sort of go out on the road myself and promote it. And so I did a radio tour down there in the U.S. And yeah, I remember you doing that. Yeah, it was really, yeah. it was really hard because I really didn't have the support from the label that I really felt like I needed. And um, 
they kind of and and then I found out you know Curb Records at the time was sort of one of these labels that would sign a ton of artists and then just kind of throw them all out there and then whatever stuck great and everything else yeah that's okay because I mean that was in the days when you know Tim McGraw his album would finance all of ours yeah but you you can't do that anymore no labels don't do that anymore you get a couple couple singles and yeah good luck good luck good luck is exactly right so how long um i know we did that album and you kind of worked worked that for a while but that didn't no that no. never really really took off and the and 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 you know at that point country radio i feel like it was just kind of it was done for me um there and I, I kind of, all I did, wanted to do at, at that point was get off my deal with Curb, but they, they, they wouldn't Where release me. Yeah. And so how long, how, how many year deal? I was with, I was with Curb for, um, uh, eight years before they finally said, go ahead. You can, you can leave now. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're done with you. And at that point, um, I'd already started the Piano Man thing, and that was ramping up, and and I kind of really just got away from doing my own music. It was it was it was um, a weird transition, but at the same time, I was ready for it. Like I was ready to, you know, say goodbye to that. Not say goodbye to it. Just say okay, time to put that on the that part of my career. Um, on the back burner and, and the face of the industry was changing too a lot. And there was a lot going on. I remember there was so much going on with Napster and all that time yeah. and people weren't selling records the way they did when I first, I mean, like for me to start with my first independent album and sell 40, 50,000 copies in Canada, that was, that was pretty significant. Yeah. And you can make some money with that. Yeah. But not now. No, no. Absolutely not. And and nobody was selling records at one point there. And that's kind of when I got into the whole, well, I still want to play. I still want to perform. And I, you know, that's when I kind of came up with the idea for this. And I was getting older. I was getting nostalgic for the music of my youth. And it was like, maybe I can come up with a show idea that, that people will, you know, come see the show. It won't be my own music, but... Um, it, it will be me relating this music and stories of my my youth and the piano man thing took off and, and it was the great thing about that was is that not only was I able to perform in Canada places where people knew who I was but I was able to to get a US agent and start touring in the US and play theaters like I mean if the great thing was is we exclusively played our show in theaters. We stayed, we didn't play bars. We didn't play clubs. We didn't. Oh, you play that one in Kingston. Ah. You remember that place? Right at the beginning. Yeah. Oh, that's a great I forget that was a. Story. Uh, it was an opening of a new bar slash restaurant slash music yeah. venue. I still remember that PA system. They had some, I don't remember what it was, but they had to set up for dance music or whatever music. Totally. So we, set up patched in and they had 
it protected so much. So when you band would play, it would clamp down. Clamp down the compressors. Yeah. There's no way to over to no, bypass until them. you guys would stop playing. Then then everything would start opening up and start feedback. And because yeah. now the PA opened up because there's no volume now. It's like a big compressor over the PA. That now, was a night. So and we had you, to do two nights, right? We had to do two yeah. nights there. Now you remember the technical end of it. I remember the fact that we were called like on a Wednesday. And I remember it was um, this guy is in need of a band to play Friday and Saturday night this weekend. And we weren't doing anything. And I said, well, yeah, but we're not really a, a dance band. Like, we're, we're a band. We can play. The, the show that we've got together right now is Billy and Elton. We can play a bunch of Billy and Elton tunes and maybe some, you know, other typical cover standard stuff, yeah. covers, you know, old time rock and roll and all that kind of thing. We can do some of that, but that that's it. Oh no, it's exactly what he wants. And I remember we, we played the, I, I, and I also remember the the guy who introduced me was from the radio station there. And he was like, Hey Jim, it's my buddy, you know, and he pretended like he, him and I went back a long way. And I remember when he introduced me that night, Night. And by the way, there was like 10 people there. Yeah. Because the advertising for this place was atrocious. Like he hadn't done any advertising at all. Nobody knew this place was even there. And we, we the, the DJ gets out on stage with, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited to invite this Canadian uh, singer songwriter to our stage here to open up the this beautiful new venue. And this guy and I, we go back years. We, good friends and we've done so many shows together please welcome what's your name what's your name again wow. and i, I don't remember and i start i started laughing and he goes no i'm serious man i'm i'm blanking on your name right now <laughs> so i anyways that was the beginning of a weekend in hell because i remember when we got there the second night the club owner was really upset because he had nobody there. Yeah. And he, and they, they came up and they said, yeah, the club owner, uh, doesn't want you to play any ballads tonight. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. He just wants dance music. And it's like, um, wait a second. It's not a dance club. It's a supper club. Yeah. It's a place where you come to get dinner. It's not a dance club. And there's 15 people here. Are you for real? Oh yeah. And he just wants all up-tempo dance songs. So I, I remember Gord Stevenson was playing drums. Wow, yeah. And I said to Gord, Gord, give me a dance beat. And he's... It's a little bit funny. We did every song. We did every song to that beat. And we were killing ourselves laughing. We had a blast that night. I'll never forget that. We had so much fun. And then I remember... We got paid, which was remarkable. We got paid at the end of the night in cash. And we went back to the hotel and we had a few drinks. And then the next day I get a call from the agent. And uh, she says, um, yeah, the club owner really wasn't happy with uh, the performance on the weekend. And I'm like, uh, what wasn't he happy about? The fact that there were only 15 people there? No, nah, he just he didn't think the band was very good. <laughs> And I said, well, I'll be honest with you. Um, we we were actually really great, but 
we weren't suitable for what he wanted. He wanted some sort of dance band, and that's not us. And I told you that from the beginning. She goes, yeah, he, he was wondering if you can get some of the money back. <laughs> wow. And I said, eh, it does not work that way. No. I'm the one that's supposed to come to you saying, hey, I need my money. Give me my money. So I just very politely told him what he could go and do. That's the agent's fault. Not, uh, 100%. That's up to the agent to say, you know. In theory, the agent didn't pick the right actor, didn't follow up. or Nobody just was looking picked for anything correctly. No. Um, apparently, that place, too, lasted like a couple of months yeah, and coming. then went out of business but but the um the good news is things really went uphill from there <laughs> i know it's funny you know you get a gig like that and you can go every time i go to kingston oh and i play kingston two three times a year now and I, every time i go there i think of that gig I, so do i yeah oh gosh yeah it's just, i think of that gig quite frequently when maybe i'm having a bit of a bad day or you know, a gig, you know, something stupid and trivial, like, oh, I don't have a stereo mix at my piano tonight. I have to deal with one monitor. I think, I, I think back to that gig, and everything's cool. Everything's good. Yeah, it's uh, the success of the piano man's been been fab, especially in the U.S. And uh, it's been crazy. Yeah, it's, it's it's to me, it's a testament to the fact that the music of the '70s. And nostalgia from the seventies is not going anywhere. I mean, it's still as hot now as it ever was. No, I I, I know booking our theater here. Gosh, it was, well, we started basically the theater here probably the same time you started the piano man because it's our eighteenth season here. Yep. So I look back at what we used to book. Yep. Uh, you know, all the old country stuff used yep. to to sell like crazy. Now you have to, you know, where you do a majority of the shows, older classic country for that type of crowd. Yep. Now it's all, you know, the Piano Man stuff, yeah. Frankie Valley, you know, all that kind of newer, everything's, you know, you have to bring your music up with... With the audience. With the audience. So if it's 20 years later, then you're doing music that's 20 years older. Exactly. And we forget that. And, and, and when I was reminded of that fact was when my mom was in her, the um, long-term care facility that she was in for a few years. And they found out, oh, your son is a musician. And, and uh, they said, would you, um, would you consider coming in and entertaining the folks here? And I said, absolutely. As long as my mom's here, I would love to come and do a show. And I'm thinking they want me to come in and do all the crooners you know i said to her oh yeah i know i can do frank sinatra and i can do you know all the old crooner tunes and, and, and glenn miller and you know all those oh no we don't we don't want that we have enough people to do that we need somebody who can do maybe music like billy joel and elton john <laughs> and i'm like yeah right okay now i get it because when those songs were hits the people that are in this facility now were in their 30s or 40 yeah. and now here we are 40 years later and these people this is the this is now becoming old timers music it is it's like now this is the old stuff yeah where it was kind of the middle ground yeah. before but now yeah. it's i know for our, the Walter Sound this year our 
we redid our whole show where we used to do a lot of classic country stuff, Patsy Cline and yeah. you know, all that stuff. I bumped everything up to the 90s. Yeah. 80s, 90s. So Alabama, yeah. Jody Messina, yeah. all that stuff. I hope you dance. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh. And that's... you think you're playing new music, but no, that's 30 years old that's now. 30 years old now. So Isn't that crazy. Yeah. And the people, you're thinking, oh gosh, like the first couple of shows, I'm thinking, you know, the people may not like us doing quote newer music right yeah. the first show in and you're doing like an alabama song and yep and people are singing and a jody messina song and people know all the words and it's like wow okay i was yeah i'm just your your judgment gets off because you you still think of when yep. you were younger yep. right because what's that thing they say that you really don't once you hit your early 30s you don't really listen to any newer music yeah or retain any newer music at that point that's you kind always of, go back you go back that's the yeah. music that stays with you for the rest of your yeah, life up absolutely. from you know from a teenager up to your early 30s yep and then you so you forget that all these people now are older yeah and yeah it's it's it's, it's fascinating and the piano shows you know it's just just perfect and then you got it you spun off how many is it five shows now is it yeah it's yeah, like the shows? piano man there's two piano man shows now so and then we have the barry manilow show and then we've kind of morphed um a few of those um together and sort of so we do a billy elton and barry manilow show all together and then we have the simon and garfunkel show and we have a Beatles show and we have like a coffee house kind of show which is all like folk artists from the 70s and um yeah, I mean, it, it's all, but it's all about nostalgia. It's all about music from the real decade that I find that people really react to is is the seventies, sixties yeah. for sure too as well, um, but the seventies and and even some eighties. You know? Yeah, it gets it gets a little weirder when you get in the mid eighties up for. Well, sure it does. Yeah, but it's still good. I mean, um, it's interesting seeing like i said that that crowd that i'm always amazed if i'm on a tour with you know a show that's in the era of your show yeah i tour this um frankie valley show all the time and you know you do some newer stuff in there you're thinking every night it goes like wow this crowd's old and i, I didn't yeah. you, you keep forgetting you think that it's going to be younger people but then he's like no this is the nope. crowd that love this music right yep. And even today, you take a look, you know, it wasn't a young crowd. Nope. Man, people knew all those songs. All of them. Yeah. Uh, I had a woman come up to me after a show a little while back, and she said, this is my mom, my mom. And and she was, t and some mom says, oh, that brought back so many memories. I love Elton John and Billy Joel. And um, she was like specifically referencing certain songs, you know, yeah. from the show. So she knew what she was talking about. And I said, do you mind me asking you, sweetie, how old are you? And she said, I'm glad you asked me. I'm 94. Wow. She was 94 years old. And she knew all of that material. She knew it all. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you forget that the, an older crowd can still rock it out. You know, nope, they may not be as jumping up on their feet and, but they, you know, I always think I, you know, when I grew up, you know, you, you, you were at a, a concert that had older people, you're at a 
country concert. You know, yeah. you're at a yeah. you know, you're at a Conway Twitty or yeah. you're at a some type of thing. And then you see the same people now, you just in my brain you associate them with an older country crowd. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that any of those people even like country music. They grew up on the rock and roll. They yeah. that's what they wanted to hear. It's See, great. It's uh, it's interesting because it's also a geographical, almost a um, regional thing that audiences, we find audiences all over the world just react differently, but it's to do with the way that they're brought up and taught how to react to a live show. Yeah. And I remember that was so evident our first time touring overseas and going to Holland. Yeah. And... Our first show, and this is, you know, the music of Billy Joel and John. It's universal. Everybody knows this music. And I finished the first song, your song. And usually when people know in North America, when people know that song is over, they start to clap. And I do this little run up, you know, at the end. And by the time I get up to the top of the keyboard playing that last little note, the audience is fully applauding and cheering. In Holland, I... What's going on here, man? There's not a noise coming from the audience. Yeah. I hit the last note. I take my hands off the keyboard. Nothing. I take my foot off the sustain pedal. Boom, music stops. And that's wow. when they started clapping. And then we quickly discovered they've been... Um, taught you wait until that song is completely done and then you applaud yeah and and it's and it's and then the other thing about those audiences too is i would say how's everybody doing tonight you know because they were all mostly english speaking yeah and you know here when you say how's everyone doing tonight they, Woo! Yeah. <laughs> and they answered in unison fine <laughs> that's great <laughs> Already then. Like, oh, wow. And then, so then you're thinking, oh, man. I remember that first show in Holland thinking, I have not touched these people. They don't get this at all. They're not digging this at all. Finish the last song, get up, standing ovation. They're all on their feet, standing, oh, cheering. They come out, give you flowers, They, you know, encore, blah, blah. It was really bizarre. So audiences are different all over, for sure. Oh, yeah. But even, even, Across Canada. Oh. Just completely different. Uh, yeah. When you're doing a cross Canada tour, it's like every night's, oh, okay, now on my last tour, it's like all of a sudden we got to like Kelowna and the place was on fire. Yeah. Like it just like literally, <laughs> but it was like, it was, people were going crazy and all of a sudden it's like, okay, I, what's the difference between I here and there? I remember that. I remember yeah. that so clearly from my, from the country days. Yeah. When I, when I had songs playing on the radio and I would go play in Ontario, and then I would go out to Vancouver, start the tour, Vancouver, yeah. and audiences were really reserved there, kind of, and then you'd hit Alberta, and I remember my first, I remember my first big show in Alberta, and I literally thought the audience didn't know who I was, when they introduced, I mean, let's jump, please welcome, Joe Winner, and I thought, I'm I'm standing off the side of the stage and I hear the audience response and I'm like, oh man, they they think they're getting somebody else. Like they don't know because they they were absolutely like treating me like I was Garth Brooks. Oh yeah. Like they were just crazy screaming and after songs and it just go it really showed me that 
certain types of music and certain audiences in certain regions are just very, very different. So they're conditioned in Alberta. It's okay to show some enthusiasm yeah. and, and get all fired up by uh, an artist. And then we'd keep coming east and we'd get back to Ontario. And I remember a few of the gigs in Ontario, um, the audiences were definitely a little more reserved. They were like, they'd kind of sit on their hands for the first couple of songs until they kind of went, oh, everybody else is clapping? Oh, okay. I can yeah. clap? Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. They need that one person to get them going. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, so you do a lot of American touring, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And uh, so what's that been like now recently for for border crossing and and, and getting your visas and that has that changed a lot for you over the last few years actually since trump came into presidency uh, we found it's easier to get p2s now uh, our work visas that used to remember there was a time there where it was like just tough it would take forever yeah the paperwork would be bogged down and if you didn't pay that you know i like to call it the they, they call it a premium processing fee i call it the you know the bribe yeah basically um an incredible amount of money just to get the paperwork through um uh but ever since trump came in it, it seems the border crossing is a lot easier of course we never i like i would never try to cross without the proper paperwork yeah and they always say even though you have been approved for a work permit in the united states it does not mean you're, let you in, yeah. you're gonna get in but we've never had an issue in fact one time we were going to play with the symphony in Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids Symphony. It was a big outdoor two-show gig. It was a big show. And our work visa did not come in in time, even though we had gone through everything and we had the presenter go and talk to their member of Congress. And, I mean, it, they went through everything they could possibly go through, every hoop they could possibly go through. They said, I said, I'm not... I'm not going to go and try to illegally cross the border. And they said, okay, well, here's what we want you to do. We just want you to go to the border and just tell them your story. Just tell them. Be honest with them. Say, I'm not trying to get across illegally, but here's the situation. What can you do? And so we went into the, you know, the office, and the, the guy interviewed us and talked with us. And he said, okay, yeah. And he went on the computer, and he saw it's all legit. Okay, yeah, I see. All right, yeah, I see what's going on here. Um, yeah, we'll we'll let you cross. And I said, oh, fabulous, thank you. He goes, yeah, um, we it's a called a uh, P two waiver fee, and it's um, I don't know, uh, eight hundred dollars each. Oh, really? Yeah, and I was like, I mean, it was so obviously something he was just making up. Yeah. Because he had the the authority to do this, yeah, and I was like, "Well, we have to do it." So, so yeah, it ended up costing me like thirty two hundred dollars or something like that to get them to sign this little card. And here you go, boys. Where you go? Have fun. And then the next day, literally the next day, the okay. AFM calls me and goes, "Your work payment's been approved." It's like, well, day late, but thanks. Well, most people wouldn't, you know do that you mean it, it's important to i've always learned that you make the gig you know you get there and you do whatever you can yeah i mean there's also certain circumstances where you know something happens you can't but um you try to make the gig 
and make it work wh- whatever way you can. Yeah. Because people, you know, the people who bought the tickets and people coming, they don't care about any. They don't care about anything that you're going through. No. They just know they bought a ticket and they want to come see the show. show. And, you know, nobody wants to hear the story and nobody wants. So you just, you know, that's just a story for us to tell on a podcast sometime. You know, exactly. Yeah. You just get up there and you perform and pretend like nothing ever happened. The ironic thing about the Grand Rapids Symphony show was that half the audience didn't make it to the show. And here's why (laughs) they, it was a, it was a free concert. No, it wasn't free. It was a concert in the park um, at a ski resort in the summer, yeah. an outdoor concert. And the road leading to it was literally two lanes, one lane going and one lane coming. And there's only one way to get there. And they've always done like pops shows, like no, nothing like a Billy Joel Elton John tribute show. And so they had no clue what kind of response they were going to get to this thing. And before we went on, I remember looking at down the road that came into the ski resort saying, um, is this traffic normal? And they said, no, um, there's going to be, we're going to hold the show for a few minutes, but there's, there's apparently four miles of cars trying to get in to this concert. And the last part, the last car literally got through the gate five songs into the second half of the show. Jeez. So there's a ton of people that missed, and that was and that was the one where we had to pay all that money for the work permit. So yeah. it, it probably I, I mean it, it's ironic that that happened, but um, yeah, we've 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 found uh, crossing the border um, going into the U.S. is has typically been quite easy. Um, yeah, since you know, even for me too, I haven't found anything that's been that bad at all. Just you know, make sure. And I always tell everybody, you know, no matter what, just always tell the truth. And and yes. you know, because that's all you need is you need is one. And oh, absolutely, you know, can mess you up. Don't take that chance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And even if you're going in, like I remember a few times going in to do showcases. And so meaning, you know, we're going to go perform. We're not getting paid. Yeah. Um, uh, but we're going to perform in front of maybe some agents. And then if they like us, then they'll bring us back and we'll get a work permit then. But you can't get a work permit when you're doing a showcase because there's no contract issued. Yeah. And the American Federation of Musicians isn't involved, blah, blah, blah. So all this kind of stuff. So I remember I remember a few times sweating it out in the, uh, not sweating it out, but basically the initial guard at the board is saying, uh, sorry, you're not going through. This, this sounds fishy to me, but I'll send you inside. You can talk with the uh, officer inside and... It's like, okay. And we just go in, we tell tell them, and they do a little bit of checking, and they come back and they go, okay, it's legit. Go ahead. Away you go. Yeah, I've never, I've done a few of those. I never had an issue because you just show up with a letter from the organization yeah. that you're doing a showcase for. And, yep. And um, it is nerve wracking, though, because, you know, you're up for a showcase and you want to make it. And there's um, a chance you're not going to get there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've never had an issue with that either, which has been really good. But and never, wow, I've never to this day had a flight not make it to a gig. I've had lots not make it home. Yeah. Which is crazy ironic. And 
but I and I and I do. <laughs> you keep I, it tight, though. We have yeah. once or twice. They, were you on the gig when we when we we were supposed to start at show was at seven o'clock and we showed up at seven thirty? Yeah, oh, I, I did one of those. We got to the we got to the venue at seven thirty. So yeah. I mean, we haven't even done load in sound check anything like that. Luckily, we used a ton of backline gear. Yeah. So we had very little to set up. And what they ended up doing, I mean, we were in constant communication with the presenter and they're like, you got a full house here. Um, we can't, you know, cancel the show. I don't want you to cancel the show. Okay, so they, 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 got, they got a sax player and I can't remember this guy's name, but he was fabulous. He played saxophone to tracks and he was like the sax man or something like that. All right. And they literally, what they did is at seven o'clock when that show was supposed to start and we're not there, they closed the curtain uh, and he stood out in front of the curtain, put his tracks on and he played for a half an hour. We showed up. They said, can you be ready in like 10 minutes? And we said, yep. And uh, so they they told the sax man, okay, you're done. And he got off the stage and they said, okay, the the main show will start in 10 minutes folks and we went on and did the show and nobody knew the difference yeah. nobody knew that we weren't we hadn't been there they just made it like here's his opening act that's fabulous yeah i know we did one i remember one flying like we had two or three f- flights to get to somewhere in florida we right. landed in jacksonville something then we had like another four-hour drive from yep. there and we got second leg of the f- one of the flights got delayed yep. and and all that and i remember I still remember telling some tech guys this story. You get in, and we were like 30 minutes before the show time we got in, I think. And I'm going back, and, you know, the theater had just got a brand-new PA system in. Oh. So brand-new line array, brand-new uh, digital console. And the guy didn't know anything about anything. So hopefully, you know, I, was, I know we were calling, can you get stuff patched or whatever. I still remember they had spent fortune i can't remember much they said there's a big money they flew this line array way up high then they found that when they they spent all this money that no one could hear anything in the first like 10 rows because <laughs> they flew the pa way too high it didn't position it right so they brought the old pa system back out which is just a floor stacked pa system on yeah. the stage and that's what they were so they're using the old system again yep. to cover the front section of the theater front 10 15 rows so i remember turning up the pa random music um and i turn up always this is my thing i always turn left side and listen then listen to the right side see what there's because there's some lots of times this left side sounds completely different than the right side right so pull up pull the left side and it's like oh well kind of sounds like the whole pa still turn up the right side I said, yeah, that kind of still sounds like it's not all coming just from the right. <laughs> and so I'm going back and forth, and I'm trying, I'm trying, you know, from the booth where I was, I couldn't even see the line or line yeah. array. It was so high. Yeah. All I could see is that there's something wrong with that piece. I don't know what's going on. Well, you know, we've been uh, having it this for like the last three or four months now, whatever. So I figured out the line line array was left and right, but the floor stack was switched. The left and right was switched. Right. So when I turned up the left side, it was the left side of the line array, but the like the, the right, right side. side of the yeah. floor stack. Yeah. And it was like, um, yeah, this is this is not right. And the guy's like, yeah, uh, never really knows that before. 
<laughs> and that was oh yeah that was the first thing try to get in you know it was just a cable at the back you switched two around all of a sudden the pa sounded like a million bucks and i was like oh gosh i remember you weren't on this this gig but we we were in florida i think sanibel island and and it was one of those things where we got in kind of late and we had to kind of do things quickly and the front of house the 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 house guy there was running sound and we're doing sound check and you know i'm i'm like something doesn't like i'm i'm on stage but still something doesn't quite sound right so i hop down and i have uh, ian and and the other guys you know do a song i said ian sit at the piano and and play something and he sits at the piano and he's playing and he's singing and his, his voice just sounds horrible the pa is just fried and i'm looking at the sound guy and he's just standing there and he's just kind of got his arms folded and he's just kind of nodding his head and i go um what's wrong well he goes what what do you mean i go the pa always sound like this he goes pretty much <laughs> <laughs> and uh said are you for real like it sounded like everything was blown. So we we went back and looked, and it ends up like the the amps that he was using to to run the front of house were completely fried. Wow, fried. So we just swapped out a few things, and all of a sudden the PA comes to life, and it's nice and crystal clear. And the guy's like, "Huh, that sounds a little better." I'm like, "A little." <laughs> like we almost did a show. My voice would have sounded like that the whole show, just fried. Yeah. And then I'm I'm thinking, how many shows did you do in here with the PA like that before you even noticed? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's it it's somewhat better than it used to be, but you know, going into theater after theater, it's just like not entirely. Do a lot of them. <laughs> I know. It's it's. There's not a lot of qualified technicians out there. No. You know, anyone that's decent is doing, you know, a turn gig or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but back in the day, I found there was a lot, um, you know, there's a lot of good um, audio guys around and, you know, go to different venues. You know, most of the time they were, you know, they did other jobs. Yep. You know, they had a PA company and they come in, they would... Yep. Now you have dedicated people there and, uh, you know, some are good and some are bad, but the worst thing nowadays and our LDs and lighting, it's just, I have this. Don't get me started on that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just the worst. It's simple. I provide them with the simplest lighting cue sheet that you can possibly imagine. And I apologize to some of them and say, this is written for, you know, Fred, who is a volunteer firefighter who got a call and they said, can you come down and run lights? And he's like, what's, what are lights? Like he, he had no clue. So I make it simple yeah. for him. And yet I still, we, we still shake our head night after night. I'll go over this simple lighting cue sheet with these people and be like, I remember the funniest was uh, after every song, I'd like a blackout. Seriously? Yeah, just a simple blackout and then you can bring the lights back up for me for talking you really yeah it's not asking for anything unusual yeah okay so we finished the first song 
and the stage goes black and he brings the house lights up 100%. <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck is he doing? So I'm talking, and I'm talking to the audience. I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's something wrong with the lights. So when we start the next song, the house lights come down, the stage lights come back up again. Finish that song, stage lights down, house lights up 100%. So now I'm like, okay, something's wrong here. This guy, this guy has no clue. Something wrong with the master fader. What he's doing, what he's doing. So while I'm playing the next song, old drummer Daryl runs out to the guy and goes, what are you doing? The guy didn't know what a blackout was. Um. He he thought a blackout meant bring the stage black and then... but. But you got to be able to see, so let's bring all the house lights, lights up, one hundred percent. And even the audience didn't know what was going on. Even the audience mm. was like looking around, like, "Why are the house lights back up here?" Oh, yeah. I mean, lighting designer stories. <laughs> yeah, there's way more of those than than audio stories. But, but I do have the best audio story, and I don't think I've shared it with you yet. And it was from our last tour. Is it better than the pin drop one? Oh, this is way better than <laughs> Pin Drop Boy. <laughs> Every time I go up, I won't tell that story, but yeah, I forget where that was. Uh, I can north. tell you where it was. It was um, Manitowoc. Yes. Every time I travel up north, I see the exit for that. Yeah. I think of that that particular at gig. The, at the, the end same thing. It's like going to Kingston. The highway, yeah. I mean, he was a great guy, but yeah. Yeah, no clue. No clue. But this is a great story. So we arrive at the gig and the PA is all set up and we've got a dedicated monitor uh, engineer on the side of the stage there. And so, you know, and we like to, I like to do things the same way every time. So I tell the monitor guy, so we'll start with my voice. We'll get it in my wedge first, we'll dish it around whoever wants it. And then we'll move on to my piano. This is how I, you know, because I know every monitor guy is different. And, and he says, it's great. I said, okay. And I'd like to do front of house at the same time because hearing what it's going to sound like out front there is going to affect how much I'm going to get in my monitors. Yeah. Um, oh. And I can see the front of house guy. He's at the board and he's got a set of headphones on. And I said, is that a problem? He goes, no, no, it's not a problem. Uh, hang on, hang on a second. He gets down from the desk and he walks up to the light, to the sound booth, to the front of house guy, yeah. and he shakes, taps him on the shoulder, and the guy takes his headphones off, and he's talking to the front of house guy. He's about a foot away from him, and he goes, Don, <laughs> the band would like to do front of house at the same time as monitors. He's screaming at this guy about a foot away from him. Wow. And we're all looking at each other like, what's going on here? And he comes back. I go, everything okay? Yeah, Don's, uh, he's a really good sound man, but he's, uh, he's uh, 75% deaf. Wow. <laughs> and I said, are you being for, are you for real right now? And he's like, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's been the sound man here for, for 30 years. And over the years, he's lost 75% of his hearing. <laughs> and 75% of the patrons. But 
he can ring out a room like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'll take your word for it. Now, you know, you can, as an artist, you can always just, you can tell what it sounds like up front. Yeah. And I could tell it was brutal. I could tell it was brutal. But we did the show and I had friends there and they're not audio people by any means. Yeah. But after the show, I said to them, um, how was the sound tonight? And uh, he said, um, it was pretty harsh. It kind of hurt my ears to listen. And I'm thinking, yeah, like... Yeah, because he's lost all that. He's here. lost mm -hmm. everything in, in that... Vo in the vocal range was gone. The vocal range down to, I don't know, whatever. I don't know my numbers like you do, but... So he had everything... That he had the EQ on the high end just cranked because to him that sounded, that's what it sounded like it should be. Yeah. That was, that was, we'd never forgotten the. Well, I'm not going to top it over, come over close on the lighting and the things. I don't think this was one of, no, this wasn't an old piano make gig, but I was doing a gig somewhere and partway into the show. And I just noticed that it's constantly, it's a green washes, you know, just ugly colors all the time. And eventually it's like, okay, I got to say something. So, you know, pull up the calm and say, hey, uh, how's it going? But good, good. Yeah. Could we maybe uh, do a little less with the green washes and stick, you know, a bit more blues and whatever? He goes, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this. Is, I'm, uh, I'm actually colorblind. <laughs> so they're like yeah, so now what the we gotta, was put so those two guys together. Do is we got to put the colorblind LD and the deaf sound man together. <laughs> It'd be great. And show. we now we got ourselves a show, boys. Oh. Yeah, oh, that's unbelievable. So I was gonna, I wanted to talk. So uh, I know that you had a bit of a health scare. Yes. Over the last little while, and I did, and that was uh, man, it scared the crap out of me when I heard that. But oh. uh, but uh, it scared. It seems it scared everybody but me. Yeah, um, yeah. We we finished a show in Colorado, and um, you know, I felt fine. There was nothing unusual about that show, and um, got up the next day and got on the airplane and. We were flying through Baltimore. I remember we landed in Baltimore, and I got my my backpack, got off the plane, and carrying my backpack, and I'm like, oh, I think I pulled a muscle. Like my muscles and my chest are really sore. This really hurts. So I walk to the next gate and take my backpack off and sit down, and I sit down, and it goes away. Oh, that feels all right. And then get up and walk again, just like you know. 40 feet and it's like oh there's that muscle pain again and uh, didn't think anything of it just thought it was muscle pain from thought I pulled a muscle maybe got on the plane flew to Buffalo got off the plane same thing you know walking to the luggage um, baggage claim area same thing pain in the chest and thinking well what's going on Walking to the car, same thing. But as soon as I sat down, it, the pain would go away. Yeah. Um, it would, wouldn't like instantly go away, but it would go away within you know a minute, be gone. So I'd drive home, 
at home, you know, just not, didn't say anything, just kind of doing my thing. Then I noticed I would, all I would have to do is get up and go into the kitchen and, oh, I'm getting that pain. So I'm thinking, well, I, so I look it up on my phone without Rebecca, who is my wife and is a nurse. Without telling her, I just look up chest pain when, you know, walking or whatever. And it's like, sounds like I might have angina. I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, I know people have had angina before. It's no big deal. I'll uh, I'll get on the plane tomorrow morning to go do my tour out in uh, western part of Canada. And everything will be, and then when I get home, I'll talk to my doctor. And had a horrible sleep that night and felt sick, felt lightheaded, felt um, sweaty and all that. And I remember uh, I had to get up super early for this flight. So my alarm goes at like 4 a.m. But I didn't sleep. I was awake all night. And um, Rebecca says, did you, are you okay? You, you, you tossed and turned all night long. And I said, nah. I'm having a little bit of chest pain. Um, and, she, and she says, oh, you probably strained a muscle, you know, carrying your, that backpack here. She's always bugging me about the yeah. backpack. And I said, yeah, I'm just going to get in the shower and see how I feel. So I got in the shower and then she messaged me. I heard my phone go on the counter and I got out of the shower and her message was, wait a minute, do you mean like chest pain, chest pain? And so I, I went and talked to her and I said, yeah, I think maybe I'm having a heart attack. And so, um, we live literally five minutes from the best cardiac hospital. We find out not just in Ontario, but in Canada, Mm -hmm. like five minutes. So she throws me in the car and we go down there and yeah, um, they do some testing and then be like, yeah, you had a heart attack. And then they start telling, they they hear my story about how I had the sensation yesterday and I got on the airplane and like, are you, you are one lucky person because I guess flying's the number one thing you don't do. Yeah. And they said, you're lucky to be alive right now. And if you had gotten on the plane this morning to go to Alberta, you would be a dead man right now. Guaranteed. Wow. One hundred percent. So I had a couple of stents. I had a, you know, they they put the uh, scope in there, and I had yeah. a couple of stents put in my ends up like one of my arteries was ninety nine percent blocked, and another one was like eighty percent blocked, and so I've made some changes in you know uh, my diet, um, what I, you know, certain things are cut right out. Um, but the main thing that I've done is is I've added um, some pretty serious uh, exercise into my routine. Yeah, daily. So do you do that um, on the road now as well? Yeah. So I so I always obviously try to get hotels that have treadmills or um, bikes. Yeah. In them, and ninety nine percent of the time, that's not a problem. Um, 50% of the time, the machines aren't the greatest, but they're fine. Yeah. They work, they work fine. And then if, if I can't find that, I remember one hotel we were at, um, the, the gym was okay, but they had, um, it was, uh, six floors. 
So um, I do, I do, because um, I live by um, a set of, um, it's actually 11 flights of stairs. It works out. It's 201 steps. And I go over there every day and go up and down uh, eight times. And uh, it's like, um, um, what do they call that? Not circuit training, but um, oh, interval training. Okay, Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for your help there. No problem. Thanks. I was signing it to yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> interval training where, you, you know, you work really, really hard for a couple of minutes and then you take a breather for 30 seconds or whatever. Yeah. And then you work really, really hard again for another couple of minutes. And that's really, really good for your heart. And uh, so I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. I've lost like 30 pounds um, that I didn't really think I needed to lose. And yeah. and uh, and I'm also finding, too, the shows now are so much easier. Like, it's not like they were hard, but I used to, like, I was winded at the end of certain songs. Yeah, you don't realize. No. Especially diet. Diet on the road is so That's hard. difficult. I really, on, the, on my last tour, I was out uh, about halfway through. I was like, oh, okay. As, this is enough. So I've been looking at, you know, the keto genetic diet forever. And so, you know, partway through the tour, it's like, all right, woke up. Wow. Here I go. And, uh, but man, did it, I feel so much better on, on the rest of the tour. Yeah. Because... Not that I was eating too bad. I don't, you know, we I never try to hit any fast food, but the odd time you do, uh, you can't help it. Yeah. Late at night when you've done a gig. Yep. Um, that's usually that's all it's open yeah or you order pizza i mean how many yeah. times we're out in the road we don't oh. order pizza every... or stop at mcdonald's yeah yeah it's just constant it's the worst thing for you yeah so we try to carry like good protein bars with us yeah um when we're on the road um just in case there's not a good viable uh option uh we've i've changed the rider up in in that i asked for a heart healthy and i just give a very simple example and most places are really good about providing it was just you know like baked chicken and some vegetables and no yeah. butter and and um it's it's not been that hard but uh and it was easy for us when we just did a tour of, of in florida and, and instead of us jumping around hotel 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 they rented us a house and then we would just have to drive to the gigs and the longest drive was maybe like two hours but most of them were like 30, 45 minutes because yeah. the way Florida is designed, right? You know, it's, we were all in this area here. And um, that was great because we could literally go buy groceries and we could cook our own meals. And that was, that made it super easy. That was, but then we got on a real tour of the Midwest again and it just made it, it's definitely tricky. Yeah, but it's way more doable now totally. than it used to be. Oh, absolutely. And it's just getting your mindset that, okay, now I can, yeah, or this burger without a bun. Yeah, uh, or um, you know, instead of French or fries. Or in my case, no burger. Yeah, <laughs> the keto. It's lots of uh, yeah. Lots like of I meat. know that diet. That yeah. diet is not heart healthy, by the way. Just yeah. in case you're wondering, uh, that keto diet is not my diet. Yeah, no, I, 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 I I am off red meat. I'm off of eggs. I'm off of um, bad fats. Yeah. So I have to I have to stick with. I can eat some carbs. But, you know, I just have to limit what I eat carb-wise. Yeah. But it, it certainly makes a difference on the road. You sleep. Um, that's another thing I've been trying to do, uh, to make sure solid 
seven to eight hours yes every night super important yeah. and when you add exercise into your into your routine regular exercise it's amazing how much like i never had a problem sleeping before but my sleep habits are way better than they were yeah once yeah, you add that exercise in it makes a big difference i'm huge part. way way happier um you know, you feel just... You do. You feel like a different person, yeah. don't you? And when you've done a long day, you still have steam. Yeah. I mean, there's... It's exactly. not as if you're just completely done. Yeah. And that's important. I mean, you need to have that... You know, you still need to have a little bit of gas in the tank. Yep. I used to... Yeah, I used to, like, feel like at the end of a show, I'm done. I'm, you know, it's two and a half hours and I'm done. And now we get to the end of a two and a half hour show and I feel like I could go another hour easily. Maybe more. Like I don't know how much I could still do, but I feel um, the energy level is way up, way up. Yeah, and, and for me, sleep is the big thing. Yep. I need, you know, some people, you know, even they say I, you know, I was listening to some podcasts lately, and and they're talking about sleep, and even the people say, oh, I only need three hours of sleep a night. It's it's not true. I mean, it's you're not functioning properly. You can't be. No, and you know, it just. It doesn't work. I mean, the first time I noticed it when when I was out on tour with you, when I actually decided that I need to get off the road for a while. Yep. And I still remember it. It scares the crap out of me. But we're driving through the middle of Texas, driving. I was driving, and I almost passed out at the wheel. Yep. And I'm just sitting there, almost like, oh my god, I almost just fainted. Yeah. And I just kind of politely and said, oh yeah, anybody else uh, want to drive yeah. for a while? Yeah. And, and you probably remember the next day I was we're at the airport in Atlanta and and you know I had a piece of pizza. I still remember and the pizza was just sh- sh- my hands were shaking yeah. and you know so God, that was your body telling you it's yeah. time to make some changes. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and for me it was a heart attack telling yeah. me, hey, it's time to make some changes. But the the sad thing is, there's so many people out there that get those warning signs and they don't do anything about them. No, and I've heard countless stories of people who went through exactly what i went through and they're like ah i'm not going to change my lifestyle it's and and a year or two later they drop dead yeah and it's easy especially when you're touring that's and you know spend the nights out late playing then you stay up because you can't sleep once you get home and then you're you know everything gets messed up and oh, yeah. it's, you know, it's a rough cycle. You need to keep that really consistent or try to, yep. you know, keep your tours and keep your performances and say, Hey, I need to get some sleep. And yeah. And it's just like anything. You That's have to get up. Super and, important. It, it's hard. Sometimes it's, I think a lot of people don't think of performing and being a singer or an artist or a tech person, whatever, as actual job. Yeah. You know, it's because they don't see everything that goes on behind yeah. the scenes. Right. They don't know. How did you get here today? <laughs> yeah, they there's don't. no thought that goes into that. No, yeah. But as as an artist or as a person, you you sometimes forget that what you're doing is a job too. Absolutely. And that if you know if you're working at a bank, um, you'd have to make sure you know you get up early in the morning. You have to drive to work. You got to deal with all that. You go to bed at a certain time and. And you, you tend to forget about that as yeah. as an artist because you think, oh, yeah. we're just singing, and then you know, then you get a walk of sleep in the van, but then you got to realize, oh, I got to drive tomorrow or yeah. whatever it is, and yeah. it's just like all of a sudden, before you know it, four days goes by, and it's like, oh, jeez, yeah, it's a really, balance thing yeah. for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. good to get that in check. So to wrap this up, 
Um, yeah, can we just pause for a second? Yeah. Because I got I to gotta hit the boys' room. All right, do or that. Or I'm going to explode. We're going to hit the pause button. You can edit that part out, right? I can. I'll down one of these. Yeah. And then uh, after the show, I'll down one. And then... It's that. funny how, you know, you can just about hit the stage and you got to go pee so Oh, bad. yeah. And, like it's so And you don't have time. Bad. You have time. And then you go on stage <laughs> and you'll play for like an hour and a half and you'll be fine. But as soon as you walk off that stage, it's yeah. bam, yeah, back again. Mind, all of a sudden, yeah. It's weird how your mind just for, just completely blocks that, that out. But I have had a few moments. I remember I was playing... Um, I was I was doing a tour with Farmer's Daughter. Yeah. Do you remember the, oh, yeah. them? And um, I actually played piano in their band for the tour because I said, I would love it. I would love to play piano in your in your band too because I, I, I love your music and I know the tunes. And really? Okay, cool. And I guess it was one, like one of those days where I just had a lot to drink where like three quarters of the way through their show and it's getting ready for the big piano ballad. Yeah. Which, um, sadly, I can't remember the name of the song, but I love the song and it was all piano and the three girls. And I remember, and this was in Victoria at the theater there, and I remember the song before looking at the set list going, okay, I'm not going to make it to the end of the show. I'm literally going to explode. So the song before, they didn't really need me. So I got up and I ran down the stairs into the dressing rooms <laughs> and I can hear the song on, on the comm, right? Yeah. And the speaker in there. And it's one of those where I'm, I'm having, a, <laughs> I'm having one of those Michael Myers again, one of those super long pieces. And it's just, it's not showing any sign of being over. I'm looking and in the song getting in the last chorus and I've still got all these stairs to go up and there's no segue. I'm going right into this ballad. So I literally, literally am running up the stairs as they're playing the last note and the audience applauds and I run across the backstage. I like almost jump onto the piano bench. Boom. And I start the ballad and I literally... <laughs> And they looked at me like, where the heck were you? I explained to them afterwards what happened. I said, no, it would have been a very bad scene. You would have had a piano player like crying and bent over in pain. I was doing a show once and I was, you know, you head down in the mix, whatever. And, and I looked back up and the bass player was gone, <laughs> but the bass was still playing. I couldn't, couldn't, you know. Wire, wireless? No. He was oh. plugged in. Oh wow! And uh, so he, the show. There was like two songs left, and like the song finished, and he finished, and then we started up one last song, and he played the whole last song, and there was like, there was no bass player. Where, where the where where's is the he? bass player? Well, he he had to go pee so bad, he, <laughs> he peed his pants, <laughs> and he went and. And crouched behind his bass amp. Oh, he had a big ampack no. bass, you know. Oh, and he no. stayed behind and he played the rest. Of the <laughs> 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 but he was gone. Like I just looked up and there's the bass player's gone. Oh, but he just. Couldn't. I remember Charlie Major's bass player. I can't remember the guy's name, but I remember him at an outdoor festival, um, playing, not <laughs> not feeling good, 
So he backs up and he, he doesn't have a stool or anything. He just kind of sits on the drum riser and he just keeps playing. And as, <laughs> as he's playing, he bends over <laughs> and, and he's throwing up while, <laughs> while he's playing on stage, just kind of, kind of making sure nobody, well, we all saw him. It was pretty deadly. Yeah. Those things happen. Yep. All right. To wrap this up, um, figure what what's in your gas tank now as far as where do you see yourself what what's left for for jim witter what do you feel like you uh well, is there anything left do you feel like you want to do yeah i mean i as of late i've really been getting back into the songwriting and for myself and um when i say for myself i mean just you know because i went through years where i wasn't writing and i, I think when you when you are a songwriter i think it's just something that's naturally in you and you can't just stop doing it i think it's it's like any of the other artistic kind of outlets and for the last few years i've really just felt this desire it's like i really have a i've got a lot of songs in here that i want to get out there i want to get them at least down on on uh, record them and and maybe not for me maybe for other artists yeah but i but i still want to produce them and i think it had i think it's something to do with having the the heart attack was was kind of one of those things where it it made me step back and and realize oh i'm not immortal i'm not going to be around forever and i and i did realize that i've still got a lot of ideas and a lot of material inside of me that i want to get out there so um so I've really started um, getting back into the songwriting thing, and and um, who knows what'll happen with it. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna go and see if there's any publishers that are interested in That's looking great. at these tunes, and see if any any artists out there are interested, and in, uh, maybe doing some co-writing again, and getting back into that. And it's weird because I haven't done it in so long, and it's it's kind of like riding a bike. But whereas you don't forget, but it's almost like I've got I've got myself a a new bike where it's a you know the wheels go this way like it's a whole new way of learning yeah how to ride, um, getting back at it again. It's exciting for me. It's it's been uh, the last few months of just getting ideas again. My brain is like back into that gear where I'll just be driving and I'll get a song idea and I'll have to get out my phone and put on the voice memos and throw the idea down. So I've got like just tons of, of songs started, some completed and uh, we'll see where that goes. And I mean, as far as the live performance going, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stop. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do things smarter. I think I'm going to do, I'd like to, do kind of what we did this past year and that is we worked really hard from january through to may a lot yeah you're busy and then maybe do that maybe plan the touring that way and then take the summer and the fall and the winter off and and i don't mean take it off like use that time to to um devote to to writing and and demoing and seeing what seeing if anybody still wants to hear any of these songs i'm sure they do uh, that that's a great idea it's nice to i know for me i've been out of the studio for a long time 
And uh, back in the day when we were doing a lot of stuff in here, we did tons of stuff, producing for so a bunch much. of other people yeah. and that. And, and uh, but then, you know, musical avenues take you different places. Yep. And, you know, uh, our theater here started taking up a lot of my time and touring started taking up a lot of my time and all this stuff. But man, it's nice to, when you get the time to slide back into it again. Isn't it a happy place? It is. It's. Uh, I know you posted a picture on Instagram of you sitting at your Raven consoles there and just kind of like, I think your caption was something like, it, it feels so good to be have a day to spend in the studio again. And my home studio actually, which is nothing like yours, but my home studio be kind of became like a catch-all um, just of stuff. Yeah. And so I've been cleaning it up lately and, and getting it back into shape. And it just feels so great um, to know that I'm, I've got some time now to, to spend out there and write and demo. And, and I'm hoping maybe we can, uh, we can do some more work I love to. together. In the Any studio, because those are some of my fondest memories were of the times here um, at at your studio, um, doing the the work that we did for those years together. Whether it was my own material or whether it was working with other artists, um, and just the the creative energy was just always oh, just that, that to me is like my favorite place to be. I uh, thank you. I, I agree. I feel the same. Like I, I listen back to every once in a while, you know, you pop up a computer and you say, Oh, there's something we did from years ago. Take yeah. Listen to it. And it's just like, Oh yeah, that was, yeah. That Good was, times. Yeah. Great memories. Yeah. Really, really I remember good. your mom always bringing incredible food. It, I was telling one of the, one of the guys in the band today, I said, I remember sitting in the control room and we'd be working on a mix. It'd be really late at night. I think your mom has maybe already gone to bed or something. And she'd walk in with, oh, I just whipped up some strawberry shortcake. <laughs> <laughs> she'd always do, or some sandwich, she'll come. Or, or some insane sandwich. Yeah. Like, I'm not talking like Wonder Bread. I'm talking like home-baked bread that's about three inches thick, a slice. Yeah. And some crazy sandwich that's just like, you bite into it and you go, this is the best thing I've ever had. I, I remember, I forget what, what we were doing, but we were in the studio and she... She brought in these sandwiches, and I remember you taking a bite, and you were like, literally, you stopped for a second. It's like, this is the best sandwich I've ever had in my life. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was, because I remember, too, it had cilantro in it or something, and it was like, what is this? Like, who makes a sandwich and and makes it an absolute piece of art? Like, it was just, it was like, it was. It was the best thing I'd ever had. I remember that. I remember that. that yeah, she's, moment. A, she's awesome. She's Pretty, but that's and then so that's another artistic gift, right? Yeah, to be oh, totally. able to be able to create uh, food that is just when you when you it looks beautiful, and then when you eat it, you go, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I remember doing a session years ago, and Wendell Ferguson was on the session, and it was just a in and out type of thing. I had a bunch of players in, I think, just doing overdubs. Yeah, so he was like one of the first guys, and he was done. And he left and he, my studio's part of a house. So he went into the kitchen. Mom and Kim, my sister, was, were in there cooking. Why? I went through like three musicians had come in, gone. And I was like, I just thought 
Wendell had left <laughs> out another door and he's long gone. Then all, you know, I hear him laughing or what, whatever, you know, he was doing. Well, mom came, we're making donuts in the kitchen. And I guess it was like a production line. He would just sit in there eating. Every time they make a batch, she'd be eating the donuts oh, like wow. just continuously for hours. Yeah. He was in there and he was just sat there and he just spent the whole day in there eating. I could see doing that in your mom's kitchen. Yeah, it was That's great. It. And, it, it, and I remember many meals with your, your mom and your dad and yeah. Kim and Brad even sometimes. I don't know if Brad was here all the time, but we would just sit in the kitchen there and just, oh man, the meals were just... Stella, that's one of my fondest memories of coming and working here. Was Thanks. was yeah, was it's that. it's. Uh, I miss that time a lot. Yeah, I mean it's and I miss spending the time with you as much. You know, obviously we used to see each other all the time, but yeah, not as much anymore. But and life um, gets in the way, right? It does. But, but yeah. you know, you can reconnect, and you know, it's that's the great thing about being a musician and artist, and, and that feel this doesn't matter how much time you spent away from anybody as soon as you back it's just like you yep. know you just you haven't left yep and you know and your family's fantastic too i mean uh i'm becky's very fantastic yeah. and you know, all your kids are are great and uh um you know one thing i always respected about you is that you know you really kept a great strong family bond and it was it's really respectable and and i think it's important um and especially in the music industry, it's tough to do that. You're out and you're gone and you're, you're in again, you're gone again, you're in again. So it's, yep. it's tough to do, but you, you know, you did a remarkable job. Well, I got lucky too, because I mean, I, you know, when Becky and I first started dating, she knew what I was, what I did. And, and she totally got that if she was going to stay with me and we were going to get married, that this was what life was going to be about. And, um, I mean, I'm not going to say that there's not, you know, times when I don't hear complaining, but, but it, it, it's, it's not, it's nothing to do. The complaining isn't, isn't about what it is that I do and in the lifestyle that we've chosen. It's, it might just be, it's just trivial stuff. Yeah. Um, I got really, really lucky with her because um, I know that there's, um, you know, countless people who would not put up with having a husband who does what I do because it's true. We're literally away sometimes for crazy amounts of time. Yeah. And you miss important things and you can't reschedule so a show. Yeah. And no, I mean, it is what it is. You have to, you know, like we said earlier, it's just, you know, you got to get to the show. You got to make it. That's, that's what, you know, part I've of, mi I've missed tons of big, big things. I've missed birthdays. I've missed, um, special events. I missed, I missed my daughter Roslyn singing with Keith Urban in front of twenty thousand people, singing a duet with. Him. I missed that because I had a show the very same night. Yeah, that um, it, you know, it's not it's not easy. I I I kick myself every day for missing the birthdays and missing all that kind of stuff because you, know, you can never get those moments back again. But at the same time. It's, a, it's the sacrifice that you have to make to be in this business. And I mean, if you're not willing to make those sacrifices, then this is not the business for you. No, you have to be able to, uh, I mean, obviously I've stayed single because I just, you know, it's hard to find that person that you, you know, who's going to understand 
and uh it's easier yeah you know for me it's just you know it's just it's just way easier but uh yeah i got i got really lucky yeah they're great family and uh it's you know like i said i always you know you you see when the family's together you can tell everyone you know you stick together and everyone you know you they you go out to see a show and you're close by the whole family comes yep. it's, you know they've seen you a million times you know yep. but they still go to support and, yep and it's fantastic i think that's the really fact important. that my 23 year old daughter wants to come and see me perform tomorrow yeah is um well i i mean i'm 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 just lucky i've got great kids yeah and a great family i'm I, I and i wouldn't absolutely uh trade any of that for you know any sort of level of fame or anything like that yeah because it comes down when you know the show's over you know the show is only you know a split second of your 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 day and your in your lifetime you figure those amount of hours that you perform over a lifetime it's still a small amount of time when you get back to it it's still just you know what you got is your family right? that's so, that's what you're left with yeah yeah well it's even on that i think that's important we're almost at three hours wow that went by fast podcast three number one, hours three hours i'm sitting in the chatting that's crazy thank you for being my uh, first guest i am honored that you asked me to be your first guest this is awesome let's do it again in a year hopefully i'm still going and still doing this i'd love to and uh i i've got three hours free next um uh, I'll have to get my people to next June when you come back to the theater and do your yeah. show. We'll do yeah, a, we'll do it again. We'll do another one and or sooner. I like this. And I can't still wait. tons of stuff. I love to. I, to I chat know you've about. got some great uh, other uh, guests lined up, and I'm excited to hear uh, what's going to come out of the uh, the studio here. Yeah, I'm excited too. I think uh, it's going to be fun. I like hearing the stories. I love hearing you know people's and I, and everyone wants to hear that you don't you know you don't know where everyone came from well you hope i mean as as an artist you you hope people like to hear this stuff but for me it's almost therapeutic and for me and you it's been a great opportunity for us to just sit down and gab again because so many times when we do see each other it's work and we don't really get to sit down and chat i mean i know we go and grab lunch every once in a while but yeah. that's always sometimes quick too yeah it's still this quick is, and you don't really you know how's it going you short farms for everything yeah. right so yeah yeah all right wrapping up number one uh in session with darren walters and uh you can find me on uh instagram uh darren walters uh the number one and on facebook at darren walters and the podcast is going to be on darrenwalterspodcast.com and uh make sure that you uh go to itunes subscribe and uh, tell your friends and family lots of uh, great podcasts from great musicians, artists, producers, uh, tech people, and uh, we'll talk about a bunch of different things. Once again, thanks, Jim. And uh, it's uh, early enough. I'm going to go cut some grass. Peace, buddy. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>